is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are discussing the possibly underrated 1994 Megadeth Platinum-selling album, Euthanasia. Mm, I'm not sure who would underrate it, but yeah, okay. Um, this oh, is- uh, also, this is going to be, and I just said this off the air, this is the episode <laughs> where we're going to explore Anthony's deep-seated cynicism for anything that has the Megadeth name on it. And I, I, hopefully by the end of today's episode, we'll get to the bottom of why Anthony Johnston believes that Megadeth should not be in the big four. <laughs> I never said that. I never said that. I just said that they are by far my least favorite of mm-hmm. the big four. Um, yeah. And to remind people who uh, might be new to the show or may have uh, skipped an episode, this is our second, actually, encore episode, a new format that we're doing where uh, every so often we will because we don't normally revisit bands in the show. You know, once we've done a, done a, an album by a band, we won't do that band again because there are so many bands to cover and talk about uh, that that's not really fair. However, you know, there's been a lot of demand from listeners to revisit certain albums by certain bands. And so, you know, every so often we'll do a show like this where we do exactly that. Now, the first one was the bonus episode from last volume where we covered Metallica's Ride the Lightning. And we chose that. That was a surprise, a nice bonus for the listeners. This one, however, uh, like with the regular listener nomination episodes, we threw this one out to our Patreon supporters. um, And they all nominated their albums. And many of them, many of them nominated Megadeth. Uh, But most of them nominated Rust in Peace. Yes. (laughs) And then one, one person, Edgar Schmidt, nominated Euthanasia. And that was the one that came up on the random number generator. What are the chances? I'm actually super excited that it's not Rust in Peace and that it is Euthanasia because Euthanasia, I think, is a much more fun album to talk about. Um, Because as I said in the last episode, Rust in Peace is the greatest guitar album of all time. That's been scientifically proven. It's inarguable. (laughs) It is the best album that any of the big four have ever put out. And so to have a whole episode of just saying like, this song's the best, and this song's the best, and this song's the best, and the guitar solo's the best, and this is the, also the best song. Like, that would get pretty boring. So it's better <laughs> to take an album of Megadeth that is a little bit more divisive, because, uh, and the funny thing is, like, a lot of people who listen to this point in uh, our history know that the Risk episode of Unjustly Maligned was essentially the backdoor pilot for yep. Thrash It Out. That was an extremely divisive album. God, yeah, this is the third um, time you and I have talked about a Megadeth album. You know what, album. buddy? We're going to keep finding ways to make that happen. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> until you, They're just going to keep hugging you until you love them, Anthony. That's what's going to happen. So uh, so we got to talk about uh, Risk, and then we got to talk about So Far, So Good, So What, which I think is a phenomenal uh, Megadeth album, but clearly not the one that most people would choose to talk about. And then here we are now talking about another one that is just not rust in peace. And I, I get it. I get it. If you're a Megadeth fan, you just, and probably for most people who are not Megadeth fans, but will at least acknowledge that that particular album is one yeah, of maybe the greatest the thrash records heard. of all yeah. time. Exactly. And and certainly um, many would argue sort of a, one of the things that Megadeth's legacy has established upon uh, that's the one they want to hear about. But that is not as fun to talk about as some of their other albums because it's just too good. So that's why we're not talking about Rust in Peace. <laughs> so, I mean, you talk about my my cynicism of Megadeth. It's not cynicism. It's it's more just they slide off me. 
like you mentioned, like this is the third album, as I say, that we've talked about. We did, yeah, Risk. We did So Far, So Good, So What. I could not name a single track on it either Dude, of those I albums. Dude, I get it. They, I, they I can't are remember your... any of them. They just, they, they slide off me, man. It's weird. You are to Megadeth as I am to Metallica which I know for Metallica fans is mind-boggling. Like, right? <laughs> how? How can he not? That's exactly how I feel about Metallica. I just don't care. Yeah. So, uh, and I think they have a very small body of work that their legacy is built upon. And But they are who they are. So I, I get it. Like, that's uh, of, and that's how you feel about Megadeth. And so, <laughs> consequently, I freaking love Megadeth. So I'm more than happy to talk about <laughs> that and to dive back into <laughs> albums and to... You know, uh, this was an album that I hadn't dug into the history of really at all. I just sort of took it for what it was at the time that it came out. So it was a very interesting exercise to go back and look at the making of this album and some interviews around the time of this album and all of that stuff. So, uh, and it brought back some memories that I had completely forgotten about with this album. So I am oh, very excited good. to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. I like it when, when albums do so that. Hopefully I can mitigate some of your, uh, mehness with some interesting <laughs> factoids as we go through the discussion of this album. I have no doubt you will. Uh, so before we do that, first of all, I want to, uh, apologize for us taking a while to get this episode out. Brian and I have both just had, you know, other shit that we had to do um yes. you know real life getting in the way and what have you and this is literally the first weekend that either of us has been free at the same time and able to record um so yeah sorry about that also i apologize for my voice i am recovering from lurgy which i got uh two weeks ago as we record at worldcon in dublin the big science fiction convention um, and how was that con it was Give great a little uh, update yeah no it was great i went purely like as a when i go to comic cons 99 percent of the time obviously i'm there sort of as a pro as it were you know i'm on a panel or i'm signing or i've got a table or whatever yep Worldcon, that wasn't the case i went and i was just a member of the audience um i mean you know obviously a lot of people i know were on panels and you know were doing signings and stuff so it's not that i wasn't necessarily sort of moving in those circles but during the con itself i was just there in the audience um and it was great there were lots of really interesting panels uh it was a good vibe throughout the whole thing uh, john scalzi's dance party on the saturday night was <laughs> uh something to behold apparently he does that every year um yeah it was uh it was great it introduced me to some new authors who i was previously unaware of or had dimly heard of, but didn't really know much about, which is always, you know, the best thing about a convention like that. Um, For sure. Yeah, and I came away thinking, yeah, I'll probably do that again. Um, and in future, I might actually, you know, try and be on some panels and what have you. But I wanted to just sort of see, because it's organised very differently to a Comic-Con. It's all fan-run. It's a different team every year. It moves around literally the whole world, you know, from year to year. Um, and organized by completely different people. So I just wanted to sort of see it for myself before I tried to dive in as a professional, as it were. Um, but yeah, it was good. I would recommend it to anybody who, you know, enjoys science fiction or fantasy because just about everyone who was anyone in science fiction or fantasy uh, novels, particularly, not so much film and TV, but novels, was there. 
uh, it really was. You know, if you dropped a bomb on the Dublin Convention Centre, you could have killed the genre overnight. Um, it was uh, it was an incredible gathering of big names and, as I say, much smaller names and indie authors who were just as interesting, but you might not be aware of. So yeah, recommended. Apart from the I, I actually got to uh, travel to Toronto for the first time about a week and a half ago, and. I shout out to any of our listeners who are in the Toronto area because it was my first trip to Toronto and it is, I felt like I was at home because it is metalheads everywhere. And I was like, (laughs) how have I not been to Toronto before? I freaking love Toronto. Uh, I went for a conference. There's a a conference called the content experience. It's like a content marketing uh, conference that they do this company Uberflip puts on every year and they do it at the Royal Conservatory of Music which in and of itself is an amazing building and was awesome to be there for the week and be at this conference but it's right on a main sort of street right by uh, University of Toronto uh, we had an Airbnb in um, sort of Koreatown a little probably about a mile down the road from where the conference was but you could w- easily walk to the conference every day and there's so many great mom and pop shops that are little diners, little eateries, little bookstores, things like that, that reminded me very much of, uh, of New York in a way. And so one of the nights we had stopped in, we basically stopped in every bookstore that you could find along the way as a bunch of nerds do, you know, whenever they see a bookstore. And so we, we stopped in this bookstore and I'm browsing around and it's an old school bookstore. There's just like shelves and boxes and just books just piled up to the ceiling of all this stuff, sometimes in, you know, no particular order. And I happen to walk by the front uh, area where the guy who runs the shop is, and he's got a little radio, and on the radio is Slayer. Wow. And I said to the guy, of course, already knowing the answer, I'm like, are you listening to Slayer right now? Because it was was the album Repentless, which is something you're not even going to hear on metal radio usually anyways, because it's just not one of their better it's not albums, one of their bigger but, albums yeah, yeah it's yeah. not even one of their better albums right and so uh although it is the newest uh album but uh it was like a deeper cut off of that album so i was like oh he's actually listening to the to the album uh in here and he's like yeah next thing you know and i believe his name was doug miller the guy who owns this little shop 30 to 40 minutes later my entire team from work is standing outside of the store as I am continuing to carry on with this gentleman. (laughs) And we are talking about every concert we've ever been to, how many times we've seen Slayer. Of course, we're talking about all the big four. We're talking about everything in general. He's talking to me about the, uh, the venue out there that, that he goes to shows at all the time. And it just reminds me that yes, even though we all have our own different tastes and everything else, like anytime I see a metal fan in the wild, and there's any reason for us to make eye contact or to have some reason <laughs> to start a conversation, like it's just an instant rapport that is just so great. And that happened like three different times over the course of this week that I was in Toronto. We went to a diner one morning and uh, the guy who runs this little tiny diner, Blizzard of Oz is the album that he has on the whole time. So we start talking about music and it's just like my workmates are making fun of me because anytime I, you know, see uh, somebody wearing a metal shirt or I'll see like, it's, it was just great. So what kind of diner plays Ozzy Osbourne? (laughs) It was, uh, it's called, I'll tell you right now. I've now remembered the the title of the diner. It is called the white brick kitchen 
And I believe the street that all of the stuff is on is Bloor Street in Toronto, which is where the conservatory is. And uh, I don't know if University of Toronto is literally on that street, but it's like right there. And it's just this big, long street that tons of stuff is on. And this was an amazing breakfast place that we went in one morning. And yep, eating breakfast, talking to this dude about metal. And uh, it was great. In fact, I think they had like hats and t-shirts and the font of them was like the Fender font. Oh, uh, wow. From Fender Guitars. So yeah, it was great. So needless to say, I- I hope you were telling all these people about the podcast, by the way. I did, I did uh, but I'm, uh, uh, for anybody who knows me knows that I suck at promoting anything that I'm involved with, like suck at it. Although we do need to get like a card. We do, we need like a card. I just we need to need have to one like cards, in yeah, my, yeah. Uh, you know, in my uh, wallet. But yes, I did let both of them know about that. And I actually, for the bookshop owner, I actually wrote it down and wrote the website and everything. And, uh, and he was going to check it out. So if he did check it out, welcome. Uh, and for any of our other Toronto listeners, uh, man, what a great city for metal. I was like super excited. Now I want to go back there and see a show. Awesome. Yeah, it was um, great. I loved it. Sp- speaking of new listeners, actually, uh, we do have a couple of new patrons since the last episode as well. And they are Ramon Esquivel and Eric Hodges. So thank you both for yes, welcome. Uh, becoming patrons and supporting the show. Um, oh, one more thing before we get into Facebook. Speaking of uh, John Scalzi, he uh, went to see Iron Maiden. Uh, for those who don't know, by the way, John Scalzi is a very popular science fiction author. Uh, he went to see Iron Maiden uh, a week or so ago and uh, posted it on his blog. Um, and it, it, I mean, he thoroughly, it's the first time he'd ever seen Iron Maiden live. And wow. they're basically okay. doing a greatest hits tour at the moment. Yes, and it's like Legacy of the Best of the Beast or Legacy of the some, Beast or something. Legacy of the Beast, I think it's called, yeah. And it's an outrageous production where literally every song has its own stage. You know, oh with God. flying props and flames and whatever. Costume change for Dickinson for every song, that sort of thing. Um, I think he called it like ridiculously overproduced, but he loved it. You know, it was kind of, if you're going to do it, this is how to do it. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes because it's a really good review, actually. If you've ever I, seen, I, I would, if you've ever seen Maiden Live, it. you'll recognise. I mean, I've never seen them do anything on quite that scale, but if you've ever seen them live, you'll recognise, yeah, you know, like the same kind of, you'll sympathise with a lot of the feelings and reactions that he has to seeing them live. Um, yeah, it was a really good review, I thought. Well, that's the thing is that when I saw them last, it was on the Book of Souls tour. And they had, of course, the thing about Maiden is they always have a cool, you know, production. Well, they always put on a stage. show, yeah. No yeah, question. absolutely. But with Book of Souls, they played a lot of songs off of that album. And that is not, in my opinion, not close to one of their best albums. Although I do know that some people love it. Like for me, it just didn't, it didn't hit, you know, with a, with a lot of the songs on it. But they they leaned heavily into that album for the set list this particular production is the one that i would have loved to have seen because it is truly like a greatest hits uh compilation and so yeah and plus all the costumes i mean they did that too during book of souls they definitely had some costume changes and they had a few different eddies come out and stuff like that so they work that into any show but this one is like if you've never seen them before to see them really pulling from everything would be amazing yeah this frankly sounds like one of the most expensive tours to stage from their point of view i mean expensive tours to put on that's maybe may ever have happened because it really does sound like they're putting on the equivalent of 
you know, 15 different gigs <laughs> every <Yep. laughs> every night. Uh, awesome. Yeah, it sounds absolutely crazy. But yeah, as I say, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, anyway, so uh, let's move on to reactions to the last episode, which was a few weeks ago now, as I say, I know. Uh, yes. And that was the, the ministry episode. The ministry episode. Mm. Let's pull some of the comments from our Facebook page. Uh, let's see. Lots of reminiscing about people's experiences. Joe said, my brother had the previous couple of ministry albums, and I liked some of the songs, but when this came out, it was quickly one of my favorite albums. The first half is fantastic. Uh, Jeff said, when I was in college, when we were having a party, it being college, people we didn't know would just show up, and when we wanted the pikers to leave, we'd put on ministry and crank it. <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing about that is that is that was how I got introduced to this album is that I had a roommate in college who would absolutely crank this album to ridiculous volume levels. Like in our, we lived in, when I was a sophomore, I got to move in the senior apartments on campus uh, because my friends were upperclassmen. And so this was just constantly, and anytime we had a party, this would get put on for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Let's see. Stuart said, it's a love affair, mainly Jesus and my hot rod. He said, I saw ministry in 2009 in Wolverhampton. The venue suited them well. My main memories were chicken wire. Yes, they were still doing it then. And someone bleeding all over the back of the venue. Uh, he said, but I still remember hearing this album for the first time, eagerly awaited as I'd enjoyed the previous two albums. This one's the peak, though. Better songwriting, in my opinion. More fully geared out ideas. Or maybe better drugs, he said. Um <laughs> Let's see. David said, fantastic episode. Was surprised to hear Anthony's not a fan of Filth Pig, as our tastes tend to align most of the time, and that's my favorite ministry album. But then my favorite industrial band is Godflesh, so it tracks that I'd like the most slow, depressing, and drug-addled album that they did. Yeah, that's fair. And I do like Godflesh as well. I mean, you know, I was maybe I was too disparaging of Filth Pig, but, it, you know, it's not a terrible album, but it just doesn't live up to psalm 69 um you know and you can look on that as a deliberate choice to you know to do something rather than repeat themselves to do something different but even so i just none of the songs i don't think hold a candle to the best of psalm 69 uh christopher said i hadn't listened to psalm 69 for maybe 10 years until it came up for the podcast what surprised me is that i remembered the album dragging much sooner i always remember it going downhill after psalm 69 but my memory was that was that song appeared much earlier at around track four. I think it still sounds good, but it's sort of the album I can't be bothered to listen to anymore. And I do think the production style does sound a little dated in some ways. On balance, I'd say Nine Inch Nails Broken stands up better sound-wise, and that was released only two months later. Mm, yeah, it was probably not, uh, not an unfair thing to say. Um, I think the production, I think it still sounds very heavy, but at the same time, if you, I think it's one of those things where if you lived through it, that sound is so associated with ministry that you immediately think, oh, this sounds old fashioned. Um, I mean, it's impossible, you know, for people like us to listen to it with fresh ears. But I think if you had never heard ministry before and you heard that album, I don't think you'd necessarily say, oh, well, this album's clearly 20 years old uh, because it's so heavy and everything still sounds so crisp. Uh, in the right places that, yeah, I think, yeah, I disagree. I think it still sounds very modern. But that said, I do also agree that uh, Broken is a great sounding record. I mean, it's not technically an album, so we couldn't really cover it here. Um, but it is a, an absolutely great sounding record. So no argument there. 
Uh, Torin said, I loved the episode. I adore the sound of ministry and of their albums. This is undoubtedly my favorite, but I've never done a deep dive into their lyrics and background. Great fun to hear your take on the tracks made me realize I've never listened to Grace properly as I always restarted the album (laughs) mid-corrosion. Uh, Let's see. Greg said, I like ministry, though I'm not a big fan. I first heard 1,000 homo DJs cover of Supernaut in the clubs, and then Jesus Built My Hot Rod just before this album came out. I like the album, but as commented, it is a hard listen. It falls uh, into what my ex-wife would call shouty music and influenced so many (laughs) bands sound, uh, you know, uh, in much the way that Metallica's Black Album did to metal bands around the same time. What this did bring my attention to was a various artist CD called Hotwired Monster Trucks, yeah, uh, a cracking industrial compilation, which would have also had Jesus on it, but introduced me to the Young Gods and a love affair was born. Yeah, yeah, that's a good compilation album that I remember. I'd forgotten about it until Greg mentioned it, but yeah, I do remember that. Uh, somebody else actually, I think in that thread or somewhere else, uh, also berated me for not mentioning Static X. Uh which is an oversight because I really like Static X. Um, and I should have mentioned them as, you know, one of the sort of bands that had, the, upon whom Ministry had a lasting impression. You know, without Ministry, there is no Static X. And I think Wayne Static probably said that uh, in interviews. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Static X, I highly recommend their first album, Wisconsin Death Trip. Uh, Wayne Static used to call their style of music Evil Disco. <laughs> Ooh, I, I like that. It's that a makes fant- me want to listen to it more. It's a fantastic description because it really is. You listen to it, you're like, I can dance to this, but it's not very pleasant. <laughs> Evil disco. <laughs> you might have just helped to reset my perspective on that entire genre. <laughs> That's great. Uh, <laughs> now I might have to dig deeper now. R.I.P. Uh, Wayne Static. I miss him. Yeah, no, now they are touring with a masked lead singer uh, right that they right. have not yeah, yet revealed yeah. the the identity of if i'm not mistaken right that's correct yeah i'm yeah i'm still yeah i'm not sure that's a good idea but yeah i'll withhold judgment uh let's see mike said the industrial genre loves repetition so to be honest i wish this album was just a 45 minute long version of new world order uh, those two <laughs> chords endlessly repeated over and over and over again now that would be awesome and save us from some of the filler but then what do i know i love rap I know some people who might say that it feels like it's 45 minutes long. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Todd said, I agree with almost with most everything that Brian and Anthony said about this record, especially about the second side starting to drag. I think with trimming, corrosion, or just cutting it all together, moving either Hero or Jesus, Jesus Built My Hot Rod from one side to the second to last track on side two could really improve the overall pacing of this album. Um yeah, you know, that's one of the things since we started doing this show that I think about so much more now is what order I would have put the songs in. Mm. Like, and not just the opener and the closer, but now, like, playing around with the middle bits, you know, and and sort of figuring out, like, what would be the ideal, absolute, optimal, you know, uh, way to put this album together? Yeah, there's a, there's a real art to it, to, uh, you know, judging the the correct or the most appropriate i should say order of tracks on an album you know it is and i mean it's kind of a lost art these days because obviously the running order of an album is so much less important uh in you know in the modern era but back in the days of you know vinyl and even cds um it was much much more important and it is a real skill here's an interesting (laughs) strange aside for you uh phil collins was the guy who used to do that for genesis 
he was the guy who would sit with the producer and figure out the running order of the tracks of all the people in the band. Like even before he was the singer, you know, even when he was just the drummer, he was the guy who would sit down and do that. He had a real knack for it, apparently. That's interesting. I mean, that, that is fascinating to me. And obviously one that's a little more obvious is like the songs that are picked to be singles mm. and the effect that they can have on oh, that's the often whole down perception. to the label though rather than the band that's the well, thing and i think very relevant to the conversation that we're going to have today about the album that we're discussing today but back to ministry andy said anthony just missed picking my favorite ministry album my personal favorite is a mind is a terrible thing to taste i think the album walks the line between industrial and metal more successfully with a little more subtlety and some stronger songs. Psalm 69 spills over more into the metal side of things for me. It's less interesting, and I find a lot of the riffs bludgeoning and repetitive, which could be a feature or a bug, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, I was going to say, that's it. what's your problem? <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Uh, Joe said, yes, the guitar riff in Just One Fix is definitely like South of Heaven. I'd always thought it was familiar, but I hadn't heard that Slayer album much back then when I was listening to it. Thanks for pointing that out. Uh, Lenny said, great episode, such a good listen. My wife loves ministry and all things industrial, so this was absorbed by osmosis over the years. Really holds up. I'm on the same page as Anthony track-wise. 90s production had the knack of giving an album atmosphere simply by layering sounds underneath tracks that seems to have been lost nowadays. So many albums get put out nowadays that sound like barely polished demos. Brian's point about the album inducing anxiety was very well put. Bring on another Megadeth awkwardly trying out some contemporary trends album i still love it though <laughs> which is probably a good place that's to, a, probably to, a good to, segue yeah that's a Although, good segue i will say it's probably worth and i know we've banged this drum a bit before but it's probably worth reiterating that budgets for recording these days are so much lower you know have been really cut to the bone even for big bands frankly that i think a lot of that layering atmosphere process bands just don't have the time for it you know, unless you are uh, able to somehow do it, you know, at home with your own um, music workstation or something, you know, do it yourself in like Logic or Pro Tools or whatever, and then take it to the studio. I just don't think people have the time for it anymore. Uh, everything is, you know, entire albums are like right. recorded um, and mixed in two weeks. Uh, and that's regarded as, you know, that that's that's regarded as a good length of time these days. Yeah. It's crazy. I also feel like a lot more bands nowadays have taken on those production duties themselves. Yeah, true. Yeah, so which which I think also has a, a, certainly creative control being one of those things, but also budget I think factors into that as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it, you know it has both good and bad, uh, both up and downsides to it. That decision for yeah. sure. Yeah. Anyway, so so um, let me just go through the spiel and remind everyone before we get into the album that uh, if you want to join in the conversation uh, at our Facebook page, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And of course, if you want to become a patron and support the show and get the chance to nominate in our polls for things like the listener poll episode and the encore episode, and also, of course, have the chance to come on the show um, in our backstage pass episodes, which is the other new thing we started, then go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make your pledge today. And don't forget, you can get a T-shirt too. Oh yes, and the t-shirt. we always forget to remember. <laughs> no, it's me. It's always me who forgets the T-shirts. Yes, <laughs> and you can get uh, there are link to the T-shirts at thrashedoutpodcast.com, which is where you can also find the archives of all the episodes. So, Brian, lead us into the world of Megadeth, if you please. 
Well, once again, big thanks to Edgar Schmidt for picking this album. Such a fun one to talk about. Uh, I'm actually going to just kind of set the stage with uh, a little excerpt from a Loudwire article that they wrote a few years ago on the 24th anniversary of Megadeth releasing Euthanasia. So uh, just to give you some background on this album, the band wrote most of the album in Phoenix, Arizona, where Dave Mustaine had moved with his family in 94 in an effort to stay sober. Uh, Ellefson and Friedman moved to Phoenix too to make it easier for the band to work on the album. Uh, Not long after they started writing together, they realized the songs that worked best for them were mid-paced and filled with melodic hooks, which is a big thing that's going to come through on this album. But um, at the time that this album was coming about, things were already starting to kind of fracture a little bit within the band. There were group therapy sessions to get everybody on the same page. There was Mustaine struggling with his sobriety, uh, which is obviously something that has happened throughout the course of his career. But also, this was still a time where this band creatively was really finding their stride with this lineup, right? Because Marty comes on with Rust in Peace. Nick comes on with Must- Rust in Peace. They That album is super critically acclaimed. Then countdown which at the time was their most commercially successful album was sort of rust in peace and a lot of those elements still there but with a little bit more accessibility i think and a lot of people may look at that album countdown to extinction as like megadeths with that lineup particularly like high point in terms of accessibility you know like most of the hardcore megadeth fans would look at rust in peace and say like that's the album where I mean, just from a pure musicianship standpoint and a guitar work, like that is the album. But Countdown is a is a little bit more accessible and was it felt like at that point in time, Megadeth was gonna become they were gonna break through. They felt poised, yeah. Yep, it, they were gonna break through, maybe, maybe not in as big of a way as Metallica did, but they were right there. And I think that's something to really think about when you look at euthanasia because you can't look at this album in a vacuum you have to look at it as the evolution of what was happening with that particular lineup at that time and i think what you see with dave mustaine and this was obviously a lineup that lasted quite a long time for them is that he starts to take on the characteristics of the other musicians that he brings into the band and that goes through a particular life cycle and then there's a reset and so at this point in time, you have Marty's sort of more experimental kind of uh, interests that have just by osmosis become part of the band. Because Dave will always say, and he said in interviews about this particular album, like, I have the final call, you know, as to what goes on, even though this particular album was more of a band effort. Uh, people coming to the table with different ideas and them sort of all, uh, you know, bringing riffs that they'd recorded to the table and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So it, it was he's the ringmaster. Yeah. He is in the sense that there, there's the final call to be made by him. But I do feel like by this point, they had played together long enough where you're seeing a lot more of what everybody else brings to the table in this album, which, uh, you know, which is why it has such a different feel, I think, because you have uh, Rust in Peace, which is like epitome of thrash, Countdown, which is, you know, 80% of that still, but with a little bit more um, commercial or sort of uh, accessible uh, to the mainstream music. And then this one is 
probably 50-50, maybe even more so in the other direction as far as like non non sort of thrashy stuff, but it's just an interesting evolution of where they were at this particular point in time. So this album came out in 1994. It was the sixth album, uh, studio album from Megadeth. And of course, you've got Mustaine, Ellefson, Friedman, and Menza on this. They would do four albums together. This is uh, number three because Menza was not there for Risk. That was, I believe, Jimmy DeGrasso uh, had replaced Menza for the Risk album. So, But this is the third one that these guys have have sort of done together. It actually peaked at number four on the Billboard charts. It went platinum uh, fairly quickly. And it was considered at the time to be another win, you know, another string of Megadeth continuing to build their mainstream acceptance and their their sort of growth as a band. So, you know, at the time, everyone that I knew loved this album, uh, even people who weren't like diehard Megadeth fans. I think in retrospect, what I have seen over the years is that a lot of people have gone back to this album and sort of poo-pooed it a little bit because they have the hindsight to be able to see where things were going, which was right. that cryptic writings got even more sort of commercial and then we eventually get to risk so they see this as the kind of the beginning of the end they see this as the beginning of the end as opposed to the evolution of rust and peace and countdown to extinction to this which i kind of like to look at those three albums in a way um and in terms of like accessibility this is maybe their most accessible album while still being palatable to their original fan base. Right, yeah. That's what I find interesting about this album, because yes. I was going to say, talking about sort of people going back in retrospect, that's interesting because, of course, a couple of years after this, Metallica released Load, which at the time was, I mean, yes, it sold and everything, because obviously after the Black Album, you know, people were going to buy whatever Metallica released next. There was no question about that. But it was pretty much, you know, derided, especially by hardcore fans. Uh, at the time and yet that's an album that in retrospect people have gone back to and gone oh actually you know what that was pretty good we just it was just so different that nobody gave it a chance at the time um so it's interesting that you know the kind of the reverse has happened with this one um for megadeth but you also talked about you know the context of the evolution of the band i think you also have to look at it in the context of the year 1994 was you know grunge was absolutely well, maybe it was starting to die out, but it had basically taken over. The it had rock changed music. the landscape. It completely changed everything. Yeah. You know, yep. as I say, 94, you can argue, was made when it was starting to die out, but it was still a force to be reckoned with. Um, uh, and I had a look at what happened in 90. The, you know, good, good old Wikipedia has like 1994 <laughs> in heavy metal. So I had a look at what happened this year. Now, I mean, regular listeners will know that 93, 94 to me were kind of golden years for metal anyway, but. 94 was the year, it was the year that Norwegian black metal burst onto the scene, which also changed things, uh, but obviously, you know, in quite different ways. It was the year Korn released their debut album. It was the year Pantera released Far Beyond Driven. Uh, it was the year Skyclad released Prince of the Poverty Line. Machine Head released Burn My Eyes. Soundgarden, Super Unknown. Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral. Testament released Low. Rollins Band released Weight. Sensor released Stacked Up. Oomph basically invented the Neue Deutsche Hertha movement, you know, which would obviously then spawn Rammstein uh, with their second album. So what a year, what a, what a crazy year of great albums, 
you know, scene changing releases and yeah, the continued evolution of the metal scene. And in that context, I think this album maybe isn't as surprising because as you and I know, an awful lot of long lived bands in the mid nineties were really struggling to figure out how to keep releasing stuff that was palatable to the new audience. Uh, For you know, sure. And some of them maybe went a bit too far in trying to placate the grunge crowd. Some of them stuck to their guns, uh, you know, and for better or worse, some of them still released great albums as a result. Some of them, eh, not so much. Um, but I think you've definitely got to take that into account. And I'm not making a judgment here. I'm just saying I think you really need to take that into account when listening to this album that almost nobody was releasing actual hardcore thrash style albums anymore the closest really was the norwegian black metal bands um but really other than that nobody was releasing anything that sounded like the heyday of late 80s thrash anymore that was just you know for the time being anyway that was completely gone and that would have been commercial suicide for any band even if they weren't you know we spoke before about how dave mustaine has always chased commercial success a little perhaps to his detriment but even if he hadn't been there's no question that he wouldn't have released another rust in peace at this stage of the metal scene because nobody was releasing that even metallica and anthrax and slayer weren't doing that in 1994 well you had metallica's black album which to, to me, is a departure from everything that had come before it, right? Oh, sure, yeah. And so, um, but in some ways, an evolution as well, right? And so, it, if you're looking at, and I'm not comparing because I know people get very, very sort of uh, <laughs> protective of stuff, but this is almost their Black Album. You know what I mean? Like, it, just in terms of their uh, still retaining some of their old sound while pushing in a new direction, right. whereas I would equate Risk more with Load. You know gotcha. what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. where it's like where where Metallica finally got to with Load, which was a, just a really big departure. That's risk for me with Megadeth. This is not Load. This is more like Black. This yeah. is where that you know we still have some of that signature sound, um, but they're definitely pushing in a new direction. And I mean, just in general, like the songs are slower, right? They're much more mid tempo. Somebody, you know. Uh, was basically calling them radio rock uh, in the when this was announced as us being talking about this album for this particular episode. And I think there is, especially nowadays, there's a there's that looking back and sort of tossing it. So I'm glad you brought up the era and sort of where music was at the time because I think yeah, at the time it was the reaction to this album when it came out was not oh my god radio rock. It was. You know, maybe some fans disappointed that it wasn't as thrashy, but it wasn't, it was well received at the time that it came out. Right. Most fans wanted something that sounded a bit like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you always had the hardcore. Pantera famously, you know, saw that opportunity when the Black Album came out and went, right, we'll be the heaviest band in the world instead. Um, actually, and I've just realized, I, I take that back, Machine Heads burn my eyes. That is, I mean, it's got groove elements, but that actually is a very, very thrashy album. Uh, but of course, even they then moved away within a couple of albums from that sound for a while. Um, and just in terms of like critical reception, I'll just read a couple from Wikipedia at the time. Uh, generally received positive reviews. Um, all music said that compared to Countdown to Extinction, the album lacks focus. However, they said that the production quality made up for that and also said that Train of Consequences in particular uh, – 
talked about its jackhammer riffs, which I I think is interesting because people might look back at the song and say, ah, it doesn't feel that heavy. But at the time, that was lauded as one of the heavier songs on the album. Uh, Sputnik Sputnik Music reviewed it positively, uh, noting the album like its predecessor was a move away from the sound heard on Rust in Peace. Uh, They said that the lack of the fast tempo was made up for by the catchiness of the tracks. Um, And that tends to be a lot of what the what people talked about at that point in time is that yes, it's a little bit slower. Maybe it's not as thrashy anymore, but all the riffs are still great and it's really catchy and there are still some really pummeling tracks on there. So at the time that was kind of the conversation that was happening around the album and it did receive positive reviews. And as I mentioned, did go platinum. And so, uh, but interesting time for the band, right? I mean, you, in that Loudwire article, the group therapy is mentioned. You know, they've already yeah. got some some kind of tugs of war going on. I'm assuming a lot of frustration with Mustaine's, you know, inconsistency in his sobriety and, you know, inability to stay focused. I mean, here you have a band where they are probably thinking at the time that they're on the cusp of like they're really, poised for absolute stardom. Absolutely, yeah. dude. So it's like that point in time where this it's all everything that he's always wanted is in his hand and he's the one who has a tough time holding it together, you know? Um, so I'm sure that's frustrating for the band. Also frustrating was the fact that they had recording studio problems and actually had to build a studio to record this album in. So they had a couple of different studios that they had worked in and had concerns with each one. So they ended up building a studio and in building that had to wait for it to be constructed. And so that had positive and negative effects. One, they were kind of frustrated that there was these delays in getting the recording done. The other thing was though, that they had really honed some of those ideas by the time they went into the recording studio. And what's cool about this, there's actually a documentary that you can find most of online. Um, it was a making of euthanasia docu- documentary, and you can find, I think, seven of the eight parts are on YouTube. And it was a VHS that came out at the time. And it actually, in one of the first or second episodes, you can see the construction that's happening, actually. They they are following people around us. They're actually putting the, the thing together. You can see the photo shoot for the cover art that they did. You can see um, a lot of the work in the studio. And one of the cool things about this is that they essentially recorded this album uh, as a band in the studio. So it wasn't a lot of like recording the the separate tracks you know one guy comes in for a few hours and does his thing another guy comes in like they were actually playing these songs in the studio together and in the studio they sound super heavy and super um crunchy and it's really kind of cool to see you can actually see sometimes they're playing with the tempo of the songs as they're recording them in the studio when you look back at this documentary you can also see songs that didn't make it on the album uh, and there was one song in particular that shows up in one of the episodes. I think it's Vortex that that is on Cryptic Writings, which is their next album, that they were playing for this album in the studio. So it was – I hadn't watched that documentary before. I don't know how I missed it back in the day when it came out. But it was awesome to go back and watch all of these conversations happening and – um, and also their relationship with producer Max Norman. Now, Max Norman had actually been the one who mixed Rust in Peace when that came out back in 1990. He then moved up to producer role with Countdown to Extinction and was also the producer on this one and did mixing as well. And so you can see his evolution of his role from you know someone who mixed the Magic album 
and then took over production duties with like co-produced with Dave Mustaine yeah. as he sort of went on to these albums. And they have a really good creative collaborative relationship with him when you're watching these documentaries of like him, they listen to him, you know, when, when he's saying we should be doing this instead of this, or why don't you change this thing up or whatever it was. It's really cool. So I will, uh, I'll send you Anthony, a link to, uh, the first episode of that documentary and people can yeah, check yeah, out yeah. those ones. Cause it's pretty awesome. Um, so is it just interesting to see like what was happening at the time, but they, they get in the studio, they play a lot of these together live as a band. And, um, you know, they come out the other end with this album that is leaning heavier into more accessible songs for them. Um, I will say the the sound on this album as well, the mixing uh, and the the sonic production is, I think, better than than other Megadeth albums I've heard. Yeah. Um, it's still not my favorite, but you know, I'm starting to think that that might just come down to taste uh, because the bass and drums. I mean, the bass is more audible on this than I think on some of their other stuff that yeah. I've heard, but it's still quite trebly. And the drums are very trebly as well. And it it's just not, again, considering you had people like Terry Date pumping out, you know, Far Beyond Driven and stuff. And uh, at, the, at the same time as this, there's really no excuse for this album being as kind of trebly and thin sounding as it does. It's As I say, it's one of the best I've heard from them. But in comparison to other sounds, not so much. You know, it's still, yeah, it doesn't sit quite right with me, unfortunately. Yeah, which is a shame too, because I think it actually has more of a bottom than a lot of their other albums. And no, that's so what I'm saying. It's, it's it does, very, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but it's just, just still but not it's enough not, for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I listen to a lot of uh, a lot of the metal I listen to. I listen to with like bass boost. You know, right, like right. in my own sort of uh, settings in whatever I'm listening to it on. But yeah, and and the other thing that's interesting about that is this is an album that's very heavily driven by drums and bass by rhythm yeah yeah yep very much so uh so it is more present on this album even though it's not necessarily ideal but it is uh it's definitely especially when they slow things down both of those things come up a little bit more i think and there's also some really good bass work by dave ellison on this album that i think is easy to overlook in songs that may feel a little bit more simple but there's some really nice uh, there's some really nice bass work on this album. I think, if anything, the the one who is mostly straight ahead on this album is Menza. Um, there's not a lot of you know flourish in yeah. the drum work on this album. I don't think he's given a ton to do on this album. But having said that, even though a lot of the the sort of drum lines are fairly basic on this one, the drums are a driving force of uh, the music on this album. So it's, uh, I guess that's the trade off there. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we get into, uh, doing track by track, um, there's two things we need to address. One of them is of course, the fact that as we record Mustaine is undergoing, uh, chemotherapy, I believe for, I believe so. Yep. For cancer. Is it uh, the throat? Yes. Throat cancer. Yep. Um, so, regardless of you know whether or not i like megadeth <laughs> please don't you know everybody listening because uh, i probably i'm going to slag them off a bit while we're talking about this album but obviously i wish mustaine you know a, a swift recovery and only the best um yeah you know let's let's not even ad- address that side of it because we're just talking here about the work 
and the music and the album. Um, so yeah, don't think that I <laughs> wish him ill <laughs> or anything like that. Um, and the other thing, let's just take it as red because I have mentioned this before when we've talked about it. And let's just take it as red. There is something about Mustaine's voice and his delivery and his vocal style that just sets my teeth on edge. Uh, I don't, I can't put my finger on it. I do not know what it is, but there is something about the way he sings that just makes my toes curl. <laughs> yeah, and which is interesting because this is one of his better vocal albums by a long shot. Oh, really? Oh, right. uh, okay. In terms of in terms of trying to carry a melody, sure. You know, yeah. uh, again, he he took over singing duties in Megadeth because no one else was a. You know, although I would argue Ellefson is actually a pretty good singer, as well, you can see in some how of their much live of that performances. Is, how much of that is, yeah, nobody was good enough because it's Dave and, you know, he's a perfectionist and an oh, egotist sure. and, Could you know, they all have of those out, things. Yeah. yeah. Could they have gone out and got a high caliber singer? Yes. And and to be fair, I think a lot of their early stuff did not require much more than snar- snarly Right, um, like early Metallica, you know, yeah, 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 just spitting venom, right? And I think a lot of people who are who are Megadeth fans w- wish that he would just go back to that, like right, and stop trying you to sing. <laughs> it, you don't need to be melodic. Like, let the music carry the melody. Your your lyrics can just be spitting venom. Um, you know that snarl that snarl that you can hear in his delivery. Like that's the stuff that uh, a lot of Megadeth fans just want to hear out of him. I feel like I liked some of his. Uh, you know, attempts to be more melodic and attempts to 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 sing more. I think the problem is that nowadays he still continues to try to do that on some of their later albums, and he he just can't pull it off. And so, right. and also live, you know, it's very difficult to for him to pull that stuff off live. And so that's where I think like a lot of that stuff hasn't held up well because his voice hasn't held up well. Whereas he can still deliver all the classics with the snarly spit and venom that he used to in the past. And that stuff all sounds, you know, pretty much the same, but yes, but in terms of his sort of uh, vocal career, I feel like this album, you know, this period of time over the next couple albums was a time where he was sounding as good as he was going to sound, I guess is probably the best way to put it. I I just wanted to mention it because because otherwise I, I'm not going to bring it up as we record each individual track because sure. I'd, just, I'd just be saying the same things. <laughs> over right, I can't and stand over and over the stage voice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to get, like I say, let's just kind of take that as red. And that's so obviously that's a, already a sort of minus point, uh, you know, in this album's scorecard for me, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, uh, one quick thing I want to mention too, before we get into the uh, actual tracks as we go through, mm-hmm. what was really cool about this album and the thing that I had forgotten about is that there was a special that aired on MTV on Halloween night of 1994 called Night of the Living Megadeth. And it was actually something that had been recorded in New York a few days earlier. And they played, I think, three songs off of this new album because this album came out on November 1st. And so what happened was they aired this special on MTV and on Halloween night, Megadeth held a midnight signing and release party for this album at Tower Records on Sunset Strip. Man, remember when those were Uh, a thing? (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So they really celebrated the release of this album on Halloween and basically had a midnight signing about it, which was pretty cool because I remember watching this um, special on MTV on Halloween night to hear new Megadeth songs, which was pretty great. So, uh, 
And the cool thing is, and I also have a link to this, you can watch the entire concert. It's about an hour long from that night. And I think it was actually then later released on CD as a live uh, release, but you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. And they oh, play cool. Reckoning Day. They play, I think they play Reckoning Day, Train of Consequences, and To Le Monde are the three, but they also play other Megadeth tunes as well. And so it's it's pretty cool. And again, this was at a time where Mustaine's vocals were uh, were in pretty good shape. And yeah. so it's worth going back to to watch that. Um, let's see. I just want to see if there's any other thoughts. Oh, I want to give a quick shout out to Trevor Davis, who we had actually had a conversation about this album on Facebook a few weeks before it ended up getting nominated for this episode. And I had went back and re-listened to it at that particular time. And, uh, and it was great. So uh, shout out to him. Um, my biggest concern about this album is I thought that it suffered from putting two of the lesser tracks on the album out as the singles, uh, to Le Monde and train of consequences. I think train of consequences was first, uh, the first single off of this album and are not near the strongest songs on the album for me. And so I was kind of bummed that those were the two songs that they had put out. I have since come around on those songs a little bit, but at the time, I was like, why is Train of Consequences the single? Oh, I know exactly why Train of Consequences. We'll talk about this when we get to the tracks. Yeah, I can absolutely, maybe not so much at Le Monde, but Train of Consequences, I can absolutely see why that was released as a single, yeah. Uh, okay. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of fans who didn't like the album at the time, it was those two songs coming out as the singles that put people off of like what, like when when Train of Consequences is the first song off of the new Megadeth album, I think a lot of people who are waiting for the new Megadeth album were like, what now? Oh, right. They were like, if this is representative, yeah. If this is what the new Megadeth album is going to be, I'm not sure that I'm as excited about it anymore. Th- then again, you know, let's not forget Until It Sleeps was the first single off of Load. And, you know, that's really not that representative of that album either. So again, it's, you know, labels, man. Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue that that, for me, when that song came out, had a similar effect of like, whoa. Oh, no, it did for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who were looking forward to it and then saw the video for Until It Sleeps and were like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Right, (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, no no equivocating. I I literally, some of my friends were just watching Slack Jawed, that video going, what the fuck has happened? (laughs) I liked it, but you know, that's me. I ended up liking that song more as time went on. But yes, as a knee-jerk reaction to that being the first cut of the album, I was like, what? Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get into the album proper then and go through it track by track. And of course, kick things off with, logically enough, track one, Reckoning Day. Pain. 
I feel like this song is a very good opener for what you're going to get on this album. Uh, it's got that rolling rhythm, bass and drums, I feel like, drive this song. Um, there's that the whole like banging on the toms. like It's very percussive. Um, and I just think it's a, it's, it's a good opener. It's a good opener for what you're going to get for this album. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that. But obviously not. <laughs> Maybe with a different meaning behind the phrase than uh, than you. Um, it, the riff it feels kind of bog standard. I do like the the rising root note through each verse and how every line uh, or every two lines is it um, you know sort of gets progressive. Yeah, that it goes up higher. Yeah, that that's interesting. Yep. Um, the chorus, however. Yeah, um, does nothing for me. That is not good. Um, again, the riff is not too bad, uh, but yeah, it just whatever. Um, and that final line just d- deflates all impact by just the way, like the the last word is just kind of thrown away as the riff goes back to the bug standard chugga 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 bit. I just, uh, it makes no sense to me. Um, yeah, so the, the chorus does very little for me. And obviously, you know, we've said before, choruses for me are very important, I think, in songwriting, in this sort of traditional songwriting. Um, and then the ending is just kind of, I like the isolated tom roll, that that's good. The repeating, uh, yeah. how it isolates, I like that. But then they don't do anything with it. Like it doesn't lead directly into the next track or it doesn't sort of, end on you know a crash of some kind it's just again it's just kind of thrown away it's uh yeah we're some strange decisions yeah i think uh, this song uh and just a little side note ellison said that uh the reckoning day sort of main concept for this was something that he just sort of they were trying to figure out what the title for the song was going to be and he just kind of woke up one day and that had sort of come to him. So whether that is a indication that this wasn't really, this wasn't a song that was really built around a concept, you know, it was sort of a last minute. What are we going to do to well, put sure. words and lyrics to but, the song? But you then know, sort don't, of thing. If that's the case, don't make it the opener of your album, you know, it's like, or, or go in and once you decided it's going to be the first track, maybe go in and re-record it. So it's got a bit more oomph to it. I don't know. I think one of the interesting things about this is if you watch that Megadeth live in 94, it's Ellefson that's playing the floor toms with, you know, on that, oh, really? uh, right. that sort of rip. And so he starts off with that. And then right up until the baseline kicks in, he's playing those floor toms. And then he turns around and kicks in with the bass. And then at the end, he throws the bass back over his shoulder and he goes back over and he, and he plays out the song as it sort of goes out. And his uh, background vocals are really good in that live performance. So, um, it's an interesting, interesting to go and check out that version of the song that was played live in New York. And, uh, I think it, it's a little bit more dynamic than maybe what it comes across as on the album. Sure. But yeah, I mean, like the, I think when I initially discussed this one on Facebook, I said, uh, this song, Train of Consequences, Tulemond, and this song were the, in my mind, um, three songs that were not super impressive off of this album. And, and, uh, but I do think this album I think this sets the tone immediately for better or for worse that this is sort of the tempo that yeah. and, and kind of the general approach that this album is going to give you 
um, whether or not this is your favorite implementation of that on this album. Right, totally but, it, story, but it's but an I, accurate representation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that, so as fair. an opener, it does uh, it does prepare you for what's to come. I will say also, it is probably one of uh, Mustaine's better vocal performances, just in terms of, you know, tune and holding a note and all that sort of stuff. Um, I just wish that the tune was better. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, th- I, I don't want to use the word basic, but I do feel like some of the songs on this album. Oh no, I'll, I'll use it. There's the, the riff, like I say, it, it, that's why I call it bog standard. It is just a basic riff. There is nothing new or interesting, or you know, like look. Obviously, it's obvious by now. You know, I'm not the world's best, greatest Megadeth fan, but even I acknowledge that Mustaine is a fantastic player and he is a great rhythm player he that's how he made his name and so for somebody of his skill and innovation let's not forget this is the man who invented an entire chord (laughs) you know to to come up with a riff like this to open an album is just weird well and the lack of a lot of lead on this song is also doesn't leave you with much to sort of augment it. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's another thing on this album is that, although there are some absolutely choice Marty Friedman solos on this album that we'll talk about when we get to them, but there is, in overall, comparatively to previous albums, less leading, less less fills, less uh, just true balls-out solos on this album. And so it does... It, it, on previous albums, that stuff can rescue a song that's maybe not so great or that is kind of standard because the lead work on it is amazing. And when you don't have that, then you're you're just left with whatever the core of that song is. And so well, I, if that's I, not that strong to begin with, then you're sort of not doing anything to lift it. Yeah, and I think that is a reaction to the times. We talked about this way back on the first episode when we talked about St. Anger. Um yes. How, you know, whether you're a fan of guitar solos or not, one of the things that they can do is inject something into a bridge or a middle eight uh, that would otherwise just be, you know, a repeating riff. Now, obviously, a lot of modern bands have kind of lent into that and you get the breakdown and everything now, which is more interesting. But if you're not doing that, if you're literally just playing another riff through the middle eight, with no solo over it, that had better be a fucking good riff. Because if not, it's going to get boring pretty fast. Um, and so I, I think, but, but but there was a reaction against guitar solos at this time. And so I, I do wonder if that was the lack of them on a lot of, or not lack of them, but the diminishing of them on a lot of tracks well, on this album is because of just the mood of the time. And especially for a band where that is it. the main attraction. Yeah. That's that's the thing. It's like when and to not to invoke Metallica again, but because Kirk is not the greatest soloist, and Metallica's rhythms are what drive, especially in the modern era of Metallica, all of their songs. They can get away with that more than Megadeth can get away with that. Megadeth is expected to bring the solos in every song, and they are expected to be amazing right well and, the and so any complexity. song that does yeah. exactly so any song that does not bring that is immediately going to be suspect from a megadeth fan because that's right. what most of them came in the front door for <laughs> yeah like i am right, here but, for shredding 
But then to someone like me, you know, and again, we talked about this in the last Megadeth one, like I'm not really, that's not my thing. I don't care about the complexity of something. I acknowledge that if you're a Megadeth fan, however, that is what you come for. You know, that's what you're looking for. Fair enough. That's not my thing. But if you're not going to do that, then the basic riffs that you do lay down, again, had better be fucking good, you know? Uh, And that's the thing about the Black Album. That you know, and frankly, about a lot of things like uh, you know, like Motorhead albums, that which are incredibly simple, but they're really fucking good riffs. Really good. ACDC man, right? AC, exactly. Yeah, I suppose yep. you can't get more quintessential than that, can you? You know, yep. basic as you like, but really good, catchy riffs. You've got to, you can't, <laughs> you can't eschew the technical complexity and then not have good tunes. The one thing that I think is the strength of this song is the momentum of it. I do feel like it is. It, it just sort of has this sort of freight train. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that. No yeah, pun intended, yeah. because train of consequences is coming up next. <laughs> but it does sort of have this sort of freight train, like kick the door open, and it's just rolling, rolling on down the line, and it and that's the way it goes all the way through. And so I do like the momentum that this song sets up, even though, as you said, kind of basic, not really a great lead in this uh, in this song, and so it it has to live and die by that main riff yeah which Um, is uh, unfortunate for it um but okay well let's move on to track two then so yeah as you said that's train of consequences Which I think, from a musical standpoint, much more interesting, uh, much more. Uh, there's a there's a lot more diversity here. I feel like than the first song. So it's it's it opens up a little bit. I really do like that main riff. Um, the reason that for many years this was not one of my favorite songs on the album is because I did not like the fact that it was the single that came out for this album. I I just was not happy that that was the single that came out, and. I don't feel they do enough with a really solid core opening riff. Like I think that main riff is a great riff, but I'm just not a huge fan of where it goes. Um, I just think it's, it's not a bad song. I just don't think it's a great Megadeth song. Right. Yeah. I I can see that. Yeah. I, I, so you talked about this being a single, I, I think they released this single because it is one of two tracks on the album that come closest to groove metal. Um, uh-huh. and obviously at the time groove metal was the thing in 1994, that was on everybody's lips. Everybody wanted to be a groove metal band. Uh, Christ wasn't 94 the year that, uh, 
what's his face left Judas Priest to form fight, or was that maybe the year, a couple Halford? of years before? Yeah, Halford left to form fight. It was around that time anyway. You know, it's, groove metal was everything, um, and this is one of two tracks that because when I first heard the opening riff, I was like, that sounds a bit like Helmet. Um, and I mean, Helmet weren't a straight groove metal band, but they definitely, you know, groove metal fans liked them. They definitely fell into that sort of, you know, they, they had an, a Venn diagram <laughs> crossover into that yep. genre. Um, and the riff did quite remind me of, of Helmet. Yeah. So I didn't know this was a single, but as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, well, that's why. That's that's yeah. obviously why. Um, and there are things about this song that I really do like. Number one, I think the bass work is great on this song. Yes. And there's a, a very good bass line underneath if you can pick it out, uh, if if you can maybe I was going to mention the, the bass, yeah, because I, I think the bass is, especially during the chorus, is much more interesting than the, than the guitars. Yes, and like right before the last line of the chorus, there's this like, there's this like ascending, you know, thing that he does with the bass line that is really good. And there's more notes being played than are immediately recognizable when you first listen to the song. So this is a, this is a good bass line to dig into. Um, interesting thing about the solo here, because this one actually does have a solo in it, is uh, Marty said the lead solo was done in one take, the first take, with a $400 Japanese strap. I would have chosen almost any other song to be the lead-off single, but there were so many factors in making the, that decision at the time. And so two things he hit on there, obviously, the, the choice of single. But interesting about the solo, this is basically a one-take solo that he did. And it's kind of cool because it, it, it reminded me again of the documentary. If you go back and listen to it, there is some bits and pieces in there about Marty soloing in the studio and just watching him come up with stuff. Like, he was such a freaking amazing creative force in Megadeth and uh we'll talk about when we get to Tu Le Monde like just like other people trying to capture what he does no one has that magic he just has his approach to playing guitar is just awesome to watch and so it's very cool to see like this was just kind of a one take uh, and on a cheap guitar as well, yeah. On a yeah. cheap guitar, yeah. It's cool. It, it, it's super cool. There are many lead guitarists I've seen interviewed or read interviews with over the years who who will say that almost always their first solo is the one that ends up going on the track. You know, they'll 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 record and write and improvise dozens of them, and yep. then they always go back to that first one because it's the first one that's got the energy. And the groove and the feel and the feel, yep. right? It's like totally. because it's it's all new. There's a kind of you know a yep. sort of sense of danger almost to it. Uh, yeah, it, it happens a lot. The fact that it's recorded on a cheap guitar, I love because that's uh, yeah, I play guitar a little bit, but like I said, I am I am not a great guitarist at all. But I do know some people who are, uh, and I have seen people, great guitarists, pick up the most bog standard yeah like 150 dollar you know terrible cheap catalog mail order guitar <laughs> and produce amazing work on it you know it's not the guitar it's the player it seems so obvious and yet so many people don't realize that um and that's just further proof of it really if you yeah if you can take a 400 dollar japanese made guitar and turn yep. out a solo like this well yeah you know that's down to the man isn't it also, uh, I'm sure people noticed the harmonica on this song. What the fuck song. is that for? What? It literally, in my <laughs> notes, says, what the fuck is the harmonica for? This song is not is clearly not actually about boxcars and hobos. So what the fuck is that harmonica on the here for? Now, I don't have an answer to that question, Anthony. <laughs> but what I do have is a little information on the 
musician who is playing the harmonica there. Uh, Jimmy Wood, who is the lead singer and obviously harmonica player of a band called The Imperial Crowns, a very bluesy, um, uh, interesting band that you should check them out there, uh, was the one that played harmonica on this. And in the documentary, I don't know if it was the studio that hooked that up or if it was Max Norman, the producer, who wanted to bring in someone to add some uh, accents to a couple of their songs. But it is uh, this song and Elysian Fields that Harmonica appears on. And he plays in bo- on both of those songs. And so in the actual documentary, like he does this, I think he does this one first. And then they're like, hey, what if we throw another one at you? Are you interested in that? And it's kind of cool because whether you like that effect on this song or not, um, they sort of bring him into the studio. He sort of meets everyone. He sits down. They play the song for him. And then he just gets up and goes into the recording studio and they play the song through again and he just riffs on it. And so I thought that was kind of cool. It made me have a little bit more appreciation for that because I I did not uh, – I'm not looking for harmonica in my Megadeth songs, no. period. Uh, no matter what the song – it could be about boxcars and hobos. I'm still not looking for harmonica in <laughs> – my Megadeth songs, um, but gave me a little bit more of an appreciation for that um, because he seemed like a pretty cool guy when he sort of went in there and he did just kind of go with whatever came to his head as he listened through to the song, which I thought was pretty cool in, in a similar way that Marty's you know sure. solo for this song happened too. So this whole song from the harmonica accent in it to the solo in and of itself, there's there's sort of an improvisation element to this song that I that actually made me have a deeper appreciation for it than I had before, because my initial reaction at the time that it was released was like not thrilled with this being the single off the album. Yeah. No, I I can appreciate the sort of the artistry and the craft of it, of course, but it just absolutely does not fit on this track. (laughs) It's like, what the hell is going on there? I laughed. I literally laughed the first time I listened to this and heard the harmonica. I was just like, you've lost the plot, man. What is going on? Hey, well, laughter's good, so that's that's a positive feeling, right? And we're going to attribute that. We're going to say Anthony liked this song. Train of Consequences, stamp of approval from Anthony on this one. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. Well, um, let's see what uh, conclusion we can draw from track three, Addicted to Chaos. Find another one 
you're going to hurt me if it's not a good one because I feel oh, like... Oh, Brian, the- why do you let me down? This is a terrible track. <laughs> it's... Is what? this the song that you wrote no, your Facebook? No, it's not. No, it's oh, not. Oh, God. Okay, we're not even there yet. It's going to be a tough one. I should have brought some scotch or something along uh, this one with me. I like a lot of things about this song, but before I get my hopes up, why don't you tell me why this song does nothing for you? So, it's dull. Uh, I mean, that is a large part of it, is just that it is really dull, this song. Um it has one good part, and that is the rising guitar under the initial lines of the chorus of that that vocal melody. That's that's good. I like that. But see, right, this this is kind of quintessential Megadeth for me. You have a song called "Addicted to Chaos." It's slow. It has a boring riff, it has a predictable chord progression, and a really dull chorus. It kind of perfectly encapsulates everything that they get wrong for me as a listener. It's like a song called Addicted to Chaos, and with these lyrics, should not be a mid-tempo, repetitive, boring, predictable song. Um, It just, oh man. So, listening to this track, this helped me realise something actually. Here's a revelation for you. This helped me realise what I perceive as a difference in attitude between Megadeth and Metallica that I think explains a lot of their appeal to different people, and certainly to me. And that is, Metallica have always performed like they're teenagers, even when they're old men. Megadeth have always performed like they're old men, even when they were young. And that, to me, sums up the the fundamental contrast between the two bands and it explains for me anyway why i gravitate more towards metallica than megadeth i'm going to accept that analogy and i'm also going to say that that may be why i like megadeth more than i like metallica <laughs> sure I mean, because like, it's not a pejorative it's just no yeah you know because i find a lot of the direction of their songs to be reflective it's not about living in the moment. It's about looking back at what has happened before. And you could argue that that's, you know, Dave Mustaine's approach to his entire career, right? He's It, it is that incident where he's right. kicked out of Metallica that he's, you know... Defined and then, his life forever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then through all the addiction and everything else, it's often the songs about looking back at that and how that has affected his life or the things that he's lost or things like... It's a lot of, um, you know, kind of perseverating on the past. And in, as a person myself, I spend a lot of time thinking about stuff that happened in the past. Like, I, there's a lot of, like, self, not even self-reflection. There's a lot of reflection. Sure. Um, just in, and so for me, that is something that I've always found in Megadeth is that sort of looking back and, you know, hopefully being able to look back at mistakes that have been made or things that have happened and, and, and come out from, better sure. for it yeah, yeah. on the other end. But they don't shy away from uh, from those things and, and, the, and the damage that those things have done and stuff like that. So I look at a song like Addicted to Chaos not as a song that should be fast-tempoed, uh, very chaotic, because we're in the moment of chaos right now and we can't get away from it. If you look at a song like High Speed Dirt on Countdown to Extinction or Skin of My Teeth or something like that, that is uh, that is a much more 
up-tempo, chaotic take on a similar concept. I think this song specifically, though, is more uh, looking back about, like, how, why can't I get out of this cycle of being addicted to destroying everything in my life? You know, like, I just can't escape it. And so that sort of uh, bemoaning, you know, the, the sort of cycle Mm-hmm. of continuing to go back there that's what i take away from this song so for me i find this song to be very powerful um the fact that it is this sort of uh repeating riff over and over again to me is exactly what the theme of the song is it's the inability to escape that cycle and uh i also think that ellison's bass work is excellent on the song as well um I think he does some to, to be fair you can i think you can take that as read for just about every song yeah one of the things that did well, impress me is ellison's bass on almost every track uh there are other songs though where they don't give him a lot to do um, right, similar right. to where menza doesn't have a lot to do but i think there are certain songs on this album where he whether it's just one phrase or whether it's uh he something that's built something into to he's do, yeah. finding stuff to do and i feel like that um you know, for for a lot of uh, metal bassists, they're just sort of playing along to right, just whatever. Root note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I, I do feel like this is a place where um, no, I mean, he's, he's a getting bassist, to do that. Yeah. And uh, I love at like four thirty where where you know the lyrics are builds and builds and builds, and it just sort of the the riff just kind of like gets higher and higher. There, I think is pretty awesome. Um, there's a bass lick at four minutes and 40 seconds. That is just freaking awesome. Um, interestingly, Marty said about this, the, the vocal arrangement was probably what prevented us from ever playing this song live. Uh, and he also said that he borrowed Dave Ellison's Les Paul for the solo on the song. Um, which I think is a, is a great mid tempo solo from Marty. What, what is it about the vocal arrangement that they couldn't do live? I'm struggling to remember. I think it's the effects that they do on it. Oh, right. So okay. it's it's him trying to carry a melody, but it's also them layering effects on top of it, which I don't think would have necessarily worked in uh, in a live. Because I don't think I've ever heard them play this live. Although, they just played the whole album live, and I think some of our listeners may have been at that show. Yeah. Interesting to see how that kind of played out, especially nowadays with the state of uh, Mustaine's vocals, how that that one yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of I'm held up. Definitely but, anybody who was at the, any of those shows listening to this, get, when we post this uh, on the Facebook page, yeah, go there and let us know what the show was like. Yeah. And, but, but for me, like of the first three songs of the album, like this is, this is the first one where I was like, yep, this is what I'm, this is more of what I'm looking for. Oh, and I that. do, I do like the song, but it may be because again, I'm coming at it from almost the opposite end of like this sort of, um, uh, this this sort of un, unable unable to escape the cycle sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, uh, yeah. Like I say, it just because it comes in with this inevitability, right? Like it, it literally the the song fades in with the drums, and it's just it's and to me that's just indicative of like this has gone on. Here we go again. Yeah, and it will continue to go on, and that's what I like about the song is that he's that's the thing he's he, he can't get away from screwing things up. <laughs> all right well yeah i i won't i won't belabor the point um so well let, let's move on to the, the next track so track four is at le monde don't remember where i was i realized life was a game more seriously i took things the harder the wars became 
just before my eyes I found out how little I accomplished All my plans tonight So as you read, there's no my friends I'd love to stay with you all This actually, I think, is this is the best track so far. Of the first three tracks, I couldn't really pick a favourite. I mean, it, it's guess is my least favourite of those three, for sure. But the other two really don't impress me either. This one is definitely the best track so far on this album for me. Um, it's, uh, I mean, again, it's not particularly innovative. It's not that that interesting, but it does have some nice parts. The chord progression under the main verse is really nice uh, and that's not predictable which is good makes a change um and the counterpoint melodies during the chorus are good and the chorus itself is catchy um and you get that lovely bit when he sings when he finishes the french and he sings these are the last words what he's done there is he's singing the same vocal melody but even though everything's repeating the guitars underneath it are i think a semitone higher than the first line of the French part of the chorus, which sets up tension. So that's a really nice, you know, that's getting a bit technical, but that's a really nice music, you know, writing element of the song that I appreciate because it has the right effect. You know, it serves to kind of put some tension into the chorus, which is then released in the final line. Um, so that's, yeah, this song for me is by far the best written song on the album so far. I would agree with you as far as being the best written song in the album. When it first came out, I was disappointed that it was essentially a ballad. Um, and again, felt like a, more of a mainstream, without hearing the rest of the album, felt, felt like yeah. a mainstream sort of, uh, you know, attempt to me. However, there is a lot of great stuff going on in the song. Um, and when I read Marty's description of the solo, I actually borderline now love this song because he talks about fashioning the beginning of this guitar solo after the guitar solo in Lionel Richie's Hello. Wow. Which, which... Unexpected. Uh, <laughs> when you go back and listen to that guitar solo in Hello, it is fucking awesome. And I, like, I immediately went, holy shit, I know that guitar solo. And I went back and looked at it. The guitar player in Lionel Richie's Hello is Louis Shelton. He was a session musician that played on a lot of different albums at that time. I think actually Marty credited it to Larry Carlton at the time, who most people would know as the soloist on Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne, which is another ridiculously amazing solo. But Larry Carlton and Louis Shelton, both uh, session musicians who played on a freaking bazillion albums back in the day. But anyways, Louis Shelton has a YouTube video where he plays the solo from Hello. And if you go and listen to the initial phrase of that guitar solo, 
you can totally see how Marty, it's not the same, but definitely a similar approach to the solo. And I was like, holy shit. And that is awesome because that gives you just a little tiny bit of insight where Marty Friedman is coming from. Right. And like where his influences are, and that's from. not like, the traditional metal world. Totally, yeah. dude. Like, and just his his uh, just his approach in general, I thought was really, really kind of cool. And I think that's kind of the the thing about this album is even in an album where some people might say it's it's you know it's not thrashy, it's getting away from a lot of their sound stuff. Like, there's still these nuggets in here that are really really exciting. And so, yeah, as a big fan of Lionel Richie myself knowing that that inspired the solo for this made me the grew my love for this song uh from like a one to to <laughs> to a lot more of that now like i appreciate the song a lot more now but yeah but also could acknowledge from the beginning that this was probably the most uh from a compositional standpoint the best yeah. written song of the first four for sure yeah I, as I, said, I don't think that's even in question um yep. now you sent me a link to the version of this that they did on the collaborations album um, yes it was well it was for two i think it was from for united abominations which came out in 2007 which uh, is an album which of is, re-recorded co- collaborations is that right no no oh, it's it not, was sorry, a studio no. album that came out and it actually has the uh oh, see with a title the like that of- i thought it was just full of <laughs> No, well, keep in mind, many of Megadeth's albums feature, many of their modern albums feature songs that didn't make the cut back in the day that they've reworked for, uh, for you know, different albums as they go on. There's, there's a lot of songs that, uh, essentially, 13 was an album that was a lot of old songs that they then redid, mixed in with a few new songs. But this United Abominations album uh, featured the Gears of War song as well. I don't know if you remember, they did a theme song oh, for Gears yeah, of War. Yeah. Uh, which I suspect you would not be a fan of. Um, I, I'm struggling to even remember how it went. Yeah, and I have played pretty, games. <laughs> it's pretty straight ahead. Funny story about that: I actually went and saw Megadeth. I think it was on Halloween at Six Flags in Agawam, Massachusetts, because they had a Gears of War event where Megadeth came on for a three-song concert. Wow! In an event where you could go and play the new Gears of War, and it might have been the original Gear. I think it was the original Gears of War. You could go and play at kiosks there the original Gears of War, and Megadeth came out and played three songs, including the Gears of War theme song that they created. From that event, I got a giant gear that is uh, like a giant wooden gear with the Gears of War logo on it that hangs in my room oh, to I've this seen day. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was on the like iron gates of the concert area that Megadeth played in, I had a friend who worked security at Six Flags and they got me this gear. So I have a giant gear in my office that is from that Megadeth event. So you were like the one guy who was there more for Megadeth than the game. (laughs) 100% for Megadeth. I didn't even play Gears of War when I was there. (laughs) I literally, I literally just showed up to see Megadeth play three songs. And the cool thing was that was when James Lomenzo of Black Label Society and White Lion fame was the bass player when Ellefson was not in the band. This was when uh, he was in, and he is one of my favorite bass players of all time. So I got to see him play for the first time live with Megadeth for this three song set. And uh, it was pretty great. <laughs> I digress. Anyway, so Christina Scabia uh, yes. is the the guest vocalist on this re-recorded version of of this one. Uh, and I think it pl- it's, I read that it's played faster 
It is played faster. If you also, listen to the two right next to each other, for sure. It's also tuned differently as well. It's tuned higher. Yep. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I will say, I thought it sounded better musically. Uh, yep. I, I thought it did sound better than the album version. Um, I was disappointed that, despite featuring Christina Scabia, it doesn't actually feature Christina Scabia much at all. Uh, when I watched that <laughs> video, though, I thought there was another mix that did feature oh I'll she's have to in go the back video all over it because she's no, so easier to look at than dave mustaine but yeah <laughs> but she's barely on the record <laughs> no but i i and i could be totally wrong about this i think there's another mix out there where she is much higher in the mix because i did when i watched that video that i sent you a link to this morning i was like i don't remember that being the way that that sounded uh, okay, yeah. on the record, but I could be wrong. I mean, it could be. Uh, uh, interestingly, I believe Andy Sneap was the one who uh, produced that version oh, right. of the song. Um, but the, uh, the interesting thing about that one is not even that uh, Christina is in it, although I think that she was a great choice um, to sort of duet with Mustaine in that. The interesting thing in it is that it is, I always get Glenn and Sean mixed up, but a Glenn Drover. Uh, and Sean Drover were both in Megadeth. I think it's Glenn, who is a guitar player, uh, plays Marty's solo, but adds a few bars to it. And when you hear him play Marty's solo in that song, it will give you a new appreciation for Marty's solo in the original song. There is just a... Oh, what, in that it's not quite as good? No, it's not as good. It's someone playing the notes, but not, not capturing the like marty's got a smoothness to the way when you when he makes you feel individual notes that is by design that is not you know that yeah that's not a byproduct like he has a very sort of smooth flow to the way that he plays that you can feel on the original uh recording of this that when drover plays it it is it it's much more stilted i think when you listen to it Cool. Interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you All wanted right. to compare those two songs. Well, let's move on to track five then, uh, which you mentioned earlier, Elysian Fields. like this is the beginning of a several song run of where this album 
basically flips the paradigm of start strong, lag in the middle, finish strong. <laughs> I feel like this one starts not so great and then hits its stride mid-album with some real crushers. And I feel like this is the beginning of that. So I agree, except that I think that run is only two songs long. Uh, <laughs> but I do like this one. This is probably actually my favorite song on the album. Uh, even though it's the least metal track on the album by far. Um, no, it's very... Uh, do you know what it sounds like to me? Hit me with... Dokken. Ooh, I like it. I wasn't going to say Dokken. I feel like it's almost more 70s uh, inspired. Like, it, it, it's definitely... Uh, it's definitely more of a rock track, but the but produced more heavily. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it, yeah. it it feels heavier, but it's really a, a like a like a rock song with a kind of soaring chorus. Yeah, it is. Uh, just about halfway through, I was like, "This sounds like that Dockin album that we did." <laughs> I will um, take it all day. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the pre-chorus is awful, absolutely dreadful, but the chorus is the best one on the album uh for to my mind the the harmonies and just the overall melody of it um i think this actually is dave's best vocal performance on the album um i mentioned that reckoning day i think you know he is very good but i think this is his best performance on it um it's yeah you know even though it is this is where probably, he's sort of singing over the top of them in the background singing elysian fields yeah well that's what, right yeah, that's yeah. what i mean about the harmonies yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the whole again apart from the pre-chorus just forget the pre-chorus but everything else about it yeah it's just a good vocal performance um it's you probably couldn't get further than traditional megadeth than this track uh well i mean there's on a, this the, album the solo anyway. is a harmonica basically so yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah i i really like it i think it is the best written song on the album and as i say and you know i mean musically of course they're all performed well but this track has more layers more sonic layers to it and part of that is the choral vocals the choral style vocals in the background and as a result it feels like it's got a bit more weight to it even though it's oh. not as you say actually a heavy song no but the way it comes in is very heavy because that sort of and then bam yeah. that first punch feels like super heavy and then that that initial the main riff is great um i think yeah the pre-chorus i i don't hate it as much as you hate it but uh because I, I like the riff, I don't like what they're doing with the vocals there. Um, but yeah, I but I love the chorus on this song. And again, uh, Jimmy Wood provides the harmonica in this song. And to add to what we know about Jimmy Wood from the previous song that he appeared on, not only is he uh, in the Imperial Crowns, he's also a voice actor, and he has oh, cool. appeared in Arkham Knight, the video game. He has appeared in the Kung Fu Panda. Oh wow! Cartoon. <laughs> he's appeared in uh, Transformers cartoons, and he's also appeared in GTA Five as a voice actor. To be fair, I think every actor, every voice actor in Hollywood has been in the Transformers movies at some point or another. But uh, yeah, Kung Fu Panda, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, gone. Um, so there you go, voice think, actor and musician. I think it's all in the credits that Dave Ellison gets a co-writing credit on this track as well, um, which you know might have something to do with it. I don't know. This is another one where I feel like the the bass. Uh, especially under the chorus is great. It is really good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Love it. Um, but but what I mean is, I don't know whether he gets a writing credit just for his bass part. That would be unusual, I think, or whether you know how much influence he had over 
the riff, the melody, you know, the arrangement of the song. Um, but regardless, yeah, as I say, this is, for me, this is the peak of the album. Yeah, I really like the song. And then... Yeah, you want to move on? All right, so track six is The Killing Road. <laughs> is i think a fantastic megadeth song as well as one of the best songs on this album Hmm. interesting so i i think the opening is great uh and the opening actually it's the first time i heard it i was like well that's metallica that's like you know that that's i mean obviously it's not but that to me is kind of if you well, tra- they must have created Metallica, well, so I can understand how but, you would think that. But that's kind of what I mean, is that yeah. I think that's where you can see the roots that both Metallica and Megadeth came out of, yep. is in the intro to this. You're like, oh, I could easily imagine Metallica opening a song with this exact riff and in this Except, exact way. Uh, that I think I think a Metallica song would open that way, where it's dun 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 But then when you get to the part where it's like a bum 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 that's Megadeth right there. I feel like that when oh, you get no, to I that disagree. part of the main riff, I don't think that we're talking about Metallica Oh, anymore. no, 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 I disagree. That's the part where I, the, the, I think the main difference is that you'd get Lars banging in with cymbals at that point. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, um, on, if the, on a Metallica version. But no, 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 I did, it, was, it was that part, specifically that when it goes down uh, into the lower notes was when I was like, oh, that sounds very Hetfield to me. Um, but uh, but regardless, it's it's a really good riff um, and a really good opening. But it's another one that I think has got a very weak chorus, um, which is a shame. You know, I, I think it yeah, could have bam, with a better bam, chorus, it could have been a much bam, better song. Bam, yeah. yeah, well, and not just that, but the vocals as well. And yeah, uh, it's it's a shame because that initial riff is really good, but the rest but of the song doesn't live up to it for me. I feel like going all the way back to the first song on this album, which I think, uh, you know, in terms of Reckoning Day, had that momentum to it. I feel like this, there's a momentum to this song that really sets up very nicely as you go into a amazing solo. Uh, you know, this is this is to this point, I think, the best solo on the album. Um, and he said, "What I like about this, and uh, you can." kind of see it if you're a big rest in peace fan marty said the solo in this song is kind of a demented tornado of souls solo a lot of people consider his solo on tornado of souls to be his best solo that he ever did in megadeth period 
Um, and he said, so I guess that's why it seems so popular with guitar players. So this one has a bit of that feel to it. It's not as, it's not as elaborate as the solo on Tornado of Souls, but man, it's a great, great guitar solo. And I feel like, uh, very fitting to the main riff on this song. It's so to me, classic Megadeth song. It, It has killer riff, killer solo. Um, that's funny. So that's when you because i didn't know tornado of souls was a megadeth song and so when you said he described it that way i thought you meant that that was his metaphor for describing the solo itself and i was thinking that's a really great metaphor <laughs> yeah well it works both ways <laughs> <laughs> what album is that on tornado of souls uh it's on rust and peace oh right okay okay I, I really, and there's actually i really oh, should listen to, to that at some point shouldn't i i guess just to digress again uh kiko lorero who is megadeth's current guitar player who I feel is the only one since Marty that has that magic that Marty had in terms of just personal style, uh, the smoothness of how he plays, the flow that he plays with. And he's the only one I feel like so far that has been able to truly capture the feel of Marty's guitar work when he plays those older songs. He actually has a YouTube video, Kiko does, where he plays the Tornado of Souls solo and it's sublime it's just amazing so uh that's why i'm so excited about the current incarnation of megadeth because i feel like dirk veer buren their current drummer is like the reincarnation of gar samuelson who is my favorite megadeth drummer and now kiko has brought that that just flow that we haven't really had since marty in the band which is just uh which is awesome but tornado of souls yes very famous solo of marty's uh moving on then track seven is Blood of Heroes. Brian, I have a question for you. Why does this song exist? 
Oh my God! What get purpose out. does it serve? Get out, Anthony! <laughs> shut your computer off. You're banned from this show would, forever. Would anybody miss this song if yes. it was deleted yes. from reality? I would. <laughs> I cannot believe that is the song that you wrote this comment about. <laughs> this may be the first real argument we've ever had on this show. <laughs> I just—it's just no. Get I, out. I'm struggling to even say anything good or bad about this uh, song. This, I'm putting my two weeks' notice in right now. <laughs> it sounds exactly like. A Megadeth song. Uh, uh, hello. And what's wrong with that? I can't. I can't remember a single thing about it. It's so. There's nothing there. <laughs> um. What about the orchestral opening? I. I. I don't even remember it. I'm not joking. I genuinely couldn't. I'm looking at the lyrics now, and I'm like, I don't recall any of the music in this song. No, I'm throwing a flag on this one. <laughs> I'm throwing a flag on this one. Uh, Coach's challenge. This, this might be my favorite song on this album. Uh, no, you're kidding me. Yep. <laughs> it might be my favorite song on this entire oh, album. Oh, man. Uh, the orchestral opening is fantastic. It comes in much like the song before it. Uh, not the song before it. it comes in much like Elysian Fields with that punch and then a riff that I think is even better than the one in Elysian Fields. Um, it's got a, uh, to me, it, it it feels like a song about like being a soldier and service and stuff like that. I don't know if that's the lyrical content of what it's supposed to mean or something like that, but I feel like it has a very sort of marching cadence to it which i really think provides a lot of atmosphere for the song uh this is an example of when you use a wah pedal sparingly it can actually be a really cool effect on a song um, because marty uses a wah pedal for this solo which he comments on in one of the interviews that uh something that he very rarely did but he did for this particular song which i think is great because there's not a lot of marty solos where he is using a wah pedal so it's uh, it's a cool um departure from what he normally does the solo is amazing in this song and uh overall i just love i love the rhythm of the song i love the solo in this song um i like the chorus in this song i like everything about this song top to bottom i love this song <laughs> this is like that uh the last track on the typo negative album that we did you remember like the the nine minute track that's like in a weird time signature and stuff oh yes yeah <laughs> which i love everything about and you were like what the fuck <laughs> and i'm like cut this and throw it in the garbage and light it on fire um but yeah so for me so far we are three for three in uh after to le monde yeah oh, man you've yeah, got elysian so fields you've got killing road you've got blood of heroes so five six seven is where a lot of albums just completely drag i feel like this album was like okay now we're gonna get serious yeah now we're yeah. not fucking around anymore in the middle of the album for me it was four and five i mean i agree with you that it does pick up you know for after a sort of a week opening but it's only four and five for me uh, i am amazed i don't know why i'm amazed but i am <laughs> amazed that this is the like i was trying to think the whole time of like what fucking song is anthony talking about <laughs> when he wrote that because my i don't know if you saw my tweet about it but i was like why do you like to hurt me yeah i did <laughs> that was that was my response to your to your thing when you were like oh prep for the new for the new episodes going good i'm like why why do you like to hurt me in my heart? Uh, and th this one, this actually is the most painful hurt because it, I, my note here, I should screen cap it for you, says, Blood of Heroes might be my favorite song on this album. 
that main riff is just so great. That is literally what my first note on this song says in my notes. <laughs> Your note says, if this song didn't exist, would anybody care? Yeah. Um, so if, I think we've established that one... song falls in the forest and nobody yes, cares. I think we established that I live in that forest and there would be at least one person crying out and it would be me. So yes, you, the, the good news is you got an answer to that question. Yes. It's literally me. I'm that guy who cares about that song. Oh, man. Wow. Okay. Whew. I'm going let's, to... Let's Put that behind Promise us. myself I wouldn't cry. Let us never speak of this again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Move on. That's to- good, though, because people are always like, you guys don't argue enough on this show. Well, okay. Yeah, no, here you go. We are could not be possibly on the opposite ends of the spectrum more than on this song, number seven, this Blood particular of Heroes on Euthanasia. Absolutely. We man. have the exact opposite interpretation of that song. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, let's move on then to track eight, and that is Family Tree. tree kind of depressing subject matter uh but musically i really like this song yeah it's okay uh the, the bass lovely life, lovely bit of bass um i actually you know. feel like the opening of the song is the worst part of the song it's kind of a country mm, kind yeah, of no, opening uh, yeah but i, I think but then this... it goes bang, a dun, 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 and then it really gets into that bass driven um you know, chugging and it does feel like it's bass driven i think this is definitely one of Ellison's stronger tracks uh yeah musically it's pretty good the chorus has some nice melody i like that um uh the first yeah the verse basically i think is not all that great but the chorus and the second verse actually are more powerful it it is it might be the best chorus on the album oh i don't know whether i'd go that far um but yeah it's it's pretty good um uh, and the subject matter isn't handled too badly because, as you said, it's kind of you know the sort of right. It's matter. not like you look back at the lyrics now and completely cringe at them of like, wow, right. Uh, and you could well imagine in the nineties that oh my god, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so thank goodness, no. <laughs> yep, some good intelligent lyrics. Um, but it's funny because Marty said it was never my favorite song, and maybe the theme of it was too depressing, or the music was a bit middle of the road. 
Anthony. Mm. He said, I don't know. Uh, that said, it probably would have made a good lead-off single with one of the catchiest choruses on the album. Yeah, but you don't want to release it. This song with this well, song the, the lead the single. Studio decided not. Or, yeah, you know, the, the record company decided not to uh, release that as the number one. Yeah. Um. But interesting. So, so I do again for me in my personal scorecard. I feel like we are now at five, six, seven, eight in a row. So four oh, you'd songs put eight in a up row there now. as well. Yeah. Yep, I would put eight up there as well. Um. But yeah, so, you know, other than it being sort of a depressing subject matter, I do like the main riff to it. It has a very uh, sort of mournful tone to it, which I think is in line with the subject matter that it's actually talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also feel like this is one of the songs where uh, Menza has a little bit more to do than on some of the other songs on the album. There's some some nice little drum uh, fills or, or flirt, maybe not even fills, but just his drum line, I think, is a little bit more interesting on uh, on this song, so... All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot more to say about that. It's you know, it's a pretty good song with, yeah, you know, subject matter that really doesn't need much analysis. Um, yeah, you know, as I say, fairly well handled. So, uh, okay, I'm interested, really interested to know then whether your mid-album peak is maintained through track nine, the title track, Euthanasia. so i think it starts to drop off for me here i i see where what they're trying to do here i mean it t- it's a slower t- you know um a slower tempo it's kind of bluesy uh this is one of the album this is one of the songs on the albums that marty loves and he i'll read you what he said about it he says as you can see on the evolver video we did the basic tracks of this whole album live as a band in the studio he said to listen to the playback of this tune on the huge studio monitors was absolutely like partaking in the nectar of the gods he said thick saturated heavy guitars never sounded or felt so good um he also says my solo reminds me of an irish jig but it's the rhythm guitars that rule this tune they really liked this song in the studio I think part of it is that that doesn't translate to what you get on the album. Yeah. I can see it. I think a lot of people also that I, I don't know if it's this one or another one on the album that they, they compare to sad, but true. 
It might be euthanasia. No, they, it was uh, it was black curtains. We'll get to that. Oh, it was black curtains. Okay, um, which I don't even see, but that's interesting that that is the uh, the comparison there because I actually think this one feels a little bit more like that. It's it's very big and open and heavy. Uh, Menza is really hammering on the drums here. The drums feel very uh, sort of heavy. Uh, it feels a little doomy to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> or at least Megadeth's version of Doomy. Well, maybe right. <laughs> is that fair to say? Well, I was getting, uh, well when you were saying about uh, from saying like it sounds like thick and heavy. I'm like, yeah, maybe by Megadeth standards. <laughs> right. I mean, but again, I think look at Marty's perspective in the studio, right? So, and I think when you go back and watch that documentary, there is a very raw and heavy energy in the studio. So, this may be a, a situation where this just didn't translate to what ended up coming out on the album as heavy as they felt like it sounded in the studio. Yeah. Um, well, I think but it does, the, it, but sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, to answer your question from before, I do feel like this is where uh, it starts to slip a little bit because yeah. I do feel like up till this point, Elysian fields, the killing road, blood of heroes, family tree to me, four very strong songs in a row. And then this one kind of kills that momentum a bit. It may. It might just be the the tempo of it. It might just be because it feels very yeah. slow as it goes, and it just doesn't carry on what I felt like we had going at yeah, that time. I don't think that's down to the tempo. It's down to the to the song itself. It's just not. It's not powerful. Um, you can have power in slow songs. Sad but true being a perfect example. Sad but right. true is what track three on the black album or something. Yeah, it's I, like I, it's it's one of my the worst songs I've ever heard. No, but I love I it. Hate Sabatru. I yeah, love Sabatru. But my point is, regardless of whether you like it or not, is that it does not kill the momentum of the album. Like a slow song per se doesn't do that. A bad slow song, however, will do that. And this is just, I mean, I don't know whether I'd even say it's bad. It's just not good. Um, yeah, it sounds. I don't have a strong argument against that for, <laughs> yeah. for this one. Like I can't. I, I can't. It sounds uh, like it's being played through a cloud of Xanax. It's just. It's this is not you know I'd be interested to know if there was ever a version of this song that was more up tempo. You know, because it is the title track of the album. That's the thing that gets me. It's the title track. It's the most yeah. also overtly political song on the album. And yet it's just kind of lying there doing nothing. Right. And the, some of the lyrics are pretty interesting. Who'd believe with the way things are here, we'd be going anywhere telling people how to live. Who'd believe we spend more shipping drugs and guns than to educate our sons, but that's what they did. Like yeah. that, the, they're like lyrically, and we haven't talked a lot about lyrics uh, on the album, and it's not like there's anything, um, you know, super prophetic or, or amazingly deep, but there are some good no, lyrics some on this album. And this and is yeah, one of them for ab- sure. Absolutely. Lyrically, this is not a bad track, but that's what I mean. It's, yeah, the and music it doesn't just... pick up speed until right before the solo, right? You know, then it finally picks up speed a little bit, but then it goes back to like if I guess if they had picked up speed right before the solo, and then through the rest of the song kept that up tempo feel, I feel like this song could have been salvaged. But by going back to that sort of slow, sludgy tempo after they get through the solo, it's like. It just doesn't feel like it goes anywhere. Yeah, I mean, like I say, the tempo per se, to me, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think the guitars absolutely need beefing up. I think the issue with it sounds heavy in the studio, well, maybe you should have mixed it down to a cassette tape and listened to it in your car. Uh, 
because when you're listening on $10,000 monitor speakers in the studio, sure. that's not how most people are going to hear your song, you know? Um, you know, that's something that a lot of better bands used to do. Not so much now because everything's changed so much anyway, but, you know, they would get rough mixes made onto cassettes and then play them in the car stereo or at home on a boom box and stuff and see how they sounded there because that's how it's going to sound on the radio. That's how most yep. people are going to hear that song, you know? Um, so I think that might've had something to do with that there, but also it's not just the, 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 you know, the guitar's not being beefy. It's like, he doesn't do anything interesting with his vocals either. Again, not bad lyrics, pretty good lyrics in this track, yep. but his vocals just sound like a sort of slowed down version of what he normally does on every other track. It's like, do something different do but some sprekers angle like, do yeah. you know sort of croak it out like anselmo does on some of the slower pantera tracks just do something but that's where i feel like this is where you can look at where the decisions that they're making creatively as a band right now and you can sort of pick those apart right because what they've done with this album is they've gone to a very verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus sort of approach whereas in the past i mean certainly they had songs that were like that but there was a level of complexity and um not necessarily following the rules that megadeth had on previous songs especially in their more thrashier songs and for this album like it's just a more simplified approach overall and so when they're not elevating that simplified approach with better music it falls flat yeah it just falls flat and so that's where it's like they're but you can almost see what they're trying to do and you could maybe make the case even though there are elements of cryptic writings that came after this that were more commercial you could you could also make the case that with some of the songs on cryptic writings they course corrected a little bit um so yeah interesting but it's interesting to to think about this as for where they were at a as a band right now and some of the decisions that they were making. But yeah, case of bottom line as the title track of this album, as uh, the momentum that, that the middle of this album had going for it, this, this album kind of trips that up. Yeah. It's, I mean, n- it's not worthy of up. being the title track basically. Right. I agree with you. Uh, even though it is a great play on words. I do like the title itself is a great pun. <laughs> yep. Uh, track 10 then is, I thought I knew it all. I feel like this is, if they did a do-over of track nine, this is the better version of that on track 10. 
Oh, interesting. That's, okay. I feel like this one also has a big thundering riff. It's not as slow tempoed as the song before it, but it dun dun dan dun dan dan. It's got this almost like uh back and forth pull to it that I really like. It's very catchy. I like the pre-chorus. I feel like the riff's awesome. Um you know that maybe I don't like it, but I have no choice. I know that somewhere someone hears my voice. The the pre-chorus stuff I really like. I like the 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 music that's under it. Um, Marty actually said it's his favorite tune on the album. Hmm. Uh, he said, listening to this at high volume in the studio was amazing as well. He said, Nick and I wrote the music for the chorus at his house in North Hollywood. He also suggested that I listen to the Gypsy Kings, a particular song from them. And we both kind of got inspired by that. This kind of tune is what I love about Megadeth. So that last sentence, this kind of tune is what I love about Megadeth. That really tells you. Where he's coming from, yeah. Where Marty's coming from, right? Much more rock-influenced, pulling from a lot of different elements. And this, to him, is like a just a textbook Megadeth song hmm. for Marty Friedman. Right, right. Whereas um, most people, I think, would not <laughs> would not say that. Completely. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you that, actually, funnily enough, we, we are in agreement that I think the pre-chorus is one of the best on the album and is much, much better than the chorus. The chorus is terrible on this song. Um, the they should If they'd flipped them, it could have been, I think, it could have improved the song greatly. Oh, yeah. If the chorus... I, I actually agree with you. Melody. I'm not the lyrics. I'm just talking about the melody. If the chorus... Yep was the pre-chorus and the pre-chorus was the chorus i think it would really elevate this song because that pre-chorus is great the the music and the vocal melody over it and everything that's really really good um but yeah the the chorus not so much i this is the song where i realized the rising chord sequence that's a real favorite isn't it that's like i i suddenly realized like oh that's kind of megadeth to me they do that a lot is it hangar 18 uh is like one of their singles where the, like the entire song just keeps going up and up and up the the chords. Um, I can't remember it well enough now, but yeah, I just, I just feel like I've heard it a lot, not only on this album but on other stuff of Megadeth as well. Um, yeah, I would say it's definitely uh, indicative of Megadeth music for sure. Yeah, and it works. I'm not knocking it. It's just it took this song for me to go. I've heard that a lot. <laughs> um, question: Dave Mustaine is, I believe, uh, born again. Is that right? He is. Was that before or after this album? Ah, uh, that's a great because question. Because this song sounds, looking at the lyrics, it I feel sounds like to after, me like a Born Again song. I'd have to look at it. Well, but again, as we talked about before with uh, Addicted to Chaos, there's always that, because he's been in and out of rehab, because he's been on and off the drugs, Like there's, there's always this sort of look back at uh, how stupid was I, yeah. I thought I had it figured all out or, you know, I can't stop this self-destructive cycle or, you know, I've learned my lesson or I've got wisdom from the stuff I've been through. Like there, that, that is a theme that plays through so much of, of their um, catalog of, you know, music, e- even coming out of Metallica into the first album. Right. right it's yeah. like <laughs> he had already been through experiences that at the time he thought had taught him, what he needed to know, you know what I mean? And so I just feel like there's, there's sort of uh, a lot of that, but there, there is uh it'd be easy enough to put a date on it. There's a time where they stopped playing the conjuring, which is a, a famous Megadeth song from uh peace cells. They stopped playing it when he became born again. Oh, uh, right. Because it was, it was uh, 
you know, had those satanic elements to it, you know? So, right. uh, so whenever that was, I think is when he f- was fully sort of born again. But I think that has, is maybe not as strong nowadays. Right. Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to look, but yeah. yeah. As I say, it was just, uh, as I was reading the lyrics, I was like, I, I dimly recalled that he was born again and thought, ah, hang on a second. <laughs> maybe they're connected, but maybe not. I mean, as you say, the lyrics, you could, you know, they're not specific, but there was just something about them that made me think, oh, this seems like very much like a kind of, you know, trust in God and destiny sort of uh, lyric. Yeah. But I mean, hey, you don't have to be born again to write that. Uh, so let's move on into uh, the penultimate track, track 11, Black Curtains. I thought was going to be the one that you were like, if this song didn't exist, what would I, you know, who would even give a crap, right? Because I... Well, and it's it's up there because this is another one where I have almost nothing to say about it, uh, apart from the fact that the chorus is a travesty. Um, uh, but other than that... <laughs> um, yeah, here, here's what I think about this song. I feel like 9, 10, and 11 are all variations on a theme. Okay. And I feel like of those three songs... I thought I knew it all does it best. And so I honestly feel like you could ditch euthanasia and you could ditch black curtains because you get the best version of those three songs with euthanasia. Right. That's how I kind of feel about these three songs. So it it this part of the album feels uneven for me. It's kind of up and down and up and down and up and down. And so um, I just don't think you need this song at this point. Like, even if you just cut this one, you've got euthanasia, you've got I Thought I Knew It All. What is Black Curtains doing in this sort of same theme that is so different that it merits being in addition to those two songs? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I I would cut this and... I I think this album is too long, just generally. I would definitely cut this and Blood of Heroes um, to make a, a sort of tighter album because... Yeah, I mean, like I say, I literally... I, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna only selectively hear the first part of that sentence because you're crazy. But this is the one that someone on our Facebook group, and forgive me, I don't recall who it was, but somebody said that this is like their equivalent of sad but true. And I'm like, lol, no. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't think that, that this sounds all. like uh, sad but true. I guess there's one part of sad, like... And then this one. Oh, but that's the main Like, I guess you could maybe in the say that they're in the same universe, but I certainly don't feel like this is either a, you know, slight tweak or a or a speed up or slow down of that song at all. 
Right, but I don't even get the same feel from it. I don't I, either. Yeah, it's, but I just I've seen. I don't see it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, but all right, yeah, well, like no, I, I don't have a lot to say about this song. Yeah, it's really neither of us do. Yeah, so let's. I mean, they go just say the, black curtains over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah way too many times. Um, so let's go on to the last track. Then the final track, victory. Now one yes because this song rules uh <laughs> this is definitely one of my favorite songs on this album and also one of my favorite megadeth songs wow. this is what i want from megadeth now granted yes is it cheesy that he's using previous you know oh, song titles to, to fuck <laughs> yeah. oh come on now <laughs> really you listen to typo negative for crying out loud uh you know, let's let's not let's not ever forget that heavy metal is professional wrestling, and <laughs> there there is always an element of cheese to it. So yes, we can certainly chastise Megadeth for for uh, doing this, but musically, another bass driven like in and in and great uh, rolling bass rhythm there. Uh, this song is a setup for blistering trade off solos that to me are just signature Megadeth. Which if you don't like you know solos then you're not going to really love this song but for me fantastic closer perfect closer for this album um i love that dave's lyrics come in his uh vocals come in before the music mm-hmm. uh just it's just a half step you know before that i love that uh holy shit are the solos awesome on this song um and also like despite the cheesy use of previous song titles like the song is about the fact that Megadeth at this point in their career are considered to be successful. However, very few realize what Dave in his mind believes that he has gone through in order to achieve the success that people attribute to the band at that particular time, which is where he's coming out with like, not even close, you know, uh, needles in my veins, knife right through my heart. Obviously he's talking about the Metallica stuff. He's talking about the drug stuff he's talking about. So as a song that, uh, when you take those song titles out is about the road that they've taken to this point And the fact that they're at this point in their careers. I like that. I like that as a theme, um, whether or not having the song titles in it sort of takes some of the shine off of that as a concept, maybe, but, um, musically, I love the song and the solos are absolute shredders. I will say that it, uh, it, it, I'll give it credit that it 
it's an appropriate closer. It sounds like a closer. Um, it's got more energy than half the other tracks combined, frankly. Agreed. Um, you know, it's it's easily one of the most energetic songs on the album. Um, musically, I don't... It's not really setting anything on fire, but it feels appropriate. It works, again, as a closer. And with these lyrics and everything, it's, you know, there's nothing off musically about it. Um, and like I say, I do like, genuinely like the energy in it. I wish more tracks on the album had this kind of energy, frankly. The lyrics... Um, not even close to overdose that's a really good line that i really like the rest of it can fuck off um but it does feel like a good appropriate closing track for the album you know going by your criteria of does the closing track make you want to flip the record over and start again actually it would and then i'd be disappointed when i get uh the opening track instead but (laughs) but it would make me want to go back and start again because yeah you know this is a, a good like say a good suitable closing track. And I love to listen to those trade-off solos between the two of them, because like, this is a good example of where you can hear the differences in their styles very clearly. Um, and I, I just love that. I love how their styles complement one another. And I love how their styles are different from one another. And you can hear it again. Dave Mustaine is a, is an incredible guitar player. Marty Friedman is a once in a lifetime guitar player like that and just like so having that contrast between the two of their styles like and and that's one of the things that i absolutely adore about megadeth is that dave mustaine has never hesitated to put the most incredible musicians around him in that band and this was absolutely you know the case with marty friedman Um, which is why so many people want marty to come back to megadeth at some point but (laughs) um but yeah, so interesting stuff. I scoured to see. So a- any last thoughts on on the album? I was going to talk a bit about like live stuff uh, just for them real quick. Uh, but what, overall, album thoughts? I, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be adding this to my rotation. I think that's fairly obvious. Um, the only thing I was going to say was, do you know that story about how the U.S. Army apparently played Metallica at ear-splitting volumes to prisoners to uh, to weaken their resolve? I think they picked the wrong band. Again, just going to delete that last five <laughs> seconds of audio from my memory because now you're just trying to hurt me, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to. Not going to rise to it. Happen. Nope, I'm not going to let it happen. So, how many times have you seen Megadeth live? Surely, I would guess more than any other band. Uh yes, I would say the only one that even comes close is Slayer. Slayer, yeah. Which is weird because I've seen Slayer so many times over the past five years, I feel like, that they have become now the second most band that I've ever seen. Um, well, and also because Slayer and Megadeth are so different. <laughs> they are so different. And, but the thing about Slayer is uh, Slayer, between Slayer and like for me, it's Megadeth, Anthrax, and then depending, and then usually Slayer, Metallica, right? But Slayer, like you know exactly what you're getting. The thing about Slayer is this Slayer may be the best live band of all of those bands in the big four slayer is incredible every time you see them live i'm seeing them one last time on this farewell tour they never ever ever disappoint mm-hmm. they are amazing live tom maria still sounds amazing live they everything they do is amazing live and i think they're the most consistent live band of all of them um so that's why i will go see if slayer comes around i am going to go see slayer because i know they're going to be great every time i see them right it's like uh, Megadeth. it's like we said earlier absolutely you, you know dude. you're always going to get a show yep 
I mean, in the and and I would put Slayer up live against any other member of the Big Four in terms of consistency, and I think they would destroy everybody else. Uh, having said that, Megadeth is my favorite band of all time. So I've probably seen Megadeth close to twenty times now. Wow! Over the years, uh, although when I went back and looked at and and here's the sad thing, like I have a whole like Ziploc bag full of concert tickets mm-hmm. that I'll just dig through when I am trying to figure. Oh, when did I see that band? Or what? You know, and some of them I can remember off the top of my head, and some of them I know. Like I saw them around that time. I swore that I saw Megadeth on this tour. And I cannot find a concert ticket for it. I can't oh, find right, it. Right. And it's driving me crazy. So the, is it possible that you just lost the ticket? It's possible that I lost the ticket, but I also looked and they it didn't look like they came around a ton to this area on this particular tour. So it is entirely possible that I did not see Megadeth on this tour. I I did see them. The one that I the closest that I found two tickets for was 98, which is four years later, which was right after uh, Cryptic Writings came out. Because I just wanted to see what they were playing at the time and how many of these songs actually made it into their set. Yeah, uh, Reckoning Day still, I think, makes it into a lot of their sets. And To Le Monde, uh, both of those are the two that made it into regular rotation in their set. So the two times that I saw them in 98, they played both Reckoning Day and To Le Monde. Um, in there and they had played uh they had played different songs in both of those set lists but those two from this album remain the same uh an I'm, interesting i'm thing, surprised that reckoning day would be a a sort of live staple to be honest because you got that so they can have ellison playing the you know the floor tom and stuff like that like it's a it's a fun i guess yeah 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 i mean it's i i feel like it i that's also something you can do uh, when the rest of the band is taking a break. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can, you can, you can sort of do that stuff. Uh, it's funny that they play Tool Monde because I, I think most Megadeth fans would be fine with them not playing it, but because it was such a hit for them back in the day, like that's right. something that they always. Well, and also, um, it's a song that I imagine just plays well live. It does. You can yeah, sing along. You know. Right. There's Absolutely. not that many songs by Megadeth or Metallica, frankly, you know, that you can actually genuinely sing along to in a crowd. Right. Um, what's interesting, though, as I found out, as I looked back at some of their live stuff, is that at the time that I saw them back in the, the mid-90s, their walk-up music was Ice-T's Shut Up and Be Happy from the, <laughs> wow. from, from the Iceberg album of 1989. Now, on that album... Uh, on that particular song from Ice-T, uh, Jello Biafra, who was the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys, he there is a passage in Ice-T's song that is off of Jello's first spoken word album, No More Cocoons. And it's about like an announcement to the populace of like staying indoors and we're under martial law and we're all this kind of stuff. Now, what was interesting to me about that is when in 2017, Body Count, Ice-T's metal band, released their new album civil war the very first or actually it was bloodlust of the name of the album but the the first song they put out off of that album is called civil war and the beginning of that song features a very jello biafra inspired message to the populace spoken by dave mustaine oh <laughs> so what that tells me is that dave mustaine was actually a fan of that back then and was obviously a fan of Ice T's, and then Ice T eventually asked Mustaine to be on the album and do something very similar for a Body Count album that he did to his uh, 
hip hop album back in 1989, well, which that, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, they're so. probably pals. I mean, don't forget, Body Count does play metal festivals, Dude, so it's, they are awesome. Know, yeah, it's entirely possible that they've run into one another at festivals and become friends over the years. There will be a Body Count episode at some point on uh, <laughs> on, uh, on this, and uh, my dream tour is to have Body Count and Suicidal Tendencies go out together because I feel like that would just have be they never gone out together. Wow, they must have at some point, but that's the show I want to see. Right, I want right. to see those. Surely, two come, that, so. yeah. I mean, that just um, that's a no brainer, isn't it? Yeah, absolute no brainer, absolute no brainer. So, so uh, you know, at the end of the day, love it, hate it, or just don't care about it. Euthanasia is a pretty good album to have a discussion about. Well, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I feel like you're right. This may be the closest we've got to actual arguing in some time. <laughs> yeah, and it is a divisive album, especially now for a lot of Megadeth yeah. fans. I do not feel it was as divisive back in the day, but I feel like now people look back on it with a little bit of uh, of disdain for what they see as a much more commercial lean. But Megadeth would get much more commercial leaning as uh, the next couple albums would prove. So well, uh, and- I kind of look at this as, as when you look at Rust in Peace, Countdown, and Euthanasia, I feel like these three albums are three, um, are the best representation of that era of Megadeth. This being not as good as Countdown and certainly not as good as Rust in Peace, but it's a, it's a nice little evolution you know, in between those three albums to see where, where they creatively were going to go. Yeah. Well, you know, as you've said before, when we've talked about this, Mustaine has always chased, I mentioned it earlier, has always chased commercial success. So I don't think it's any, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone that like, and like I said, he was not alone in this by any means, you know, that he, like almost every other metal act in the mid nineties would try to become a bit more radio friendly uh, because he could see, you know, everybody could see like, oh, there's a market out there for this. You can sell millions of records if you can get the right song on the radio to the rock crowd. Um, well, and I would and not argue many that. Acts did manage it, but they all tried, you know? No, and this was the closest they got with that, right? Even though this album was not as successful as Countdown to Extinction, like for the commercial efforts, this was the closest they got to that because Risk was not well-received. And then their most recent attempt to do something like that, which is by far the worst Megadeth album in their catalog, was Super Collider from 2013. Um, That record is probably the only Megadeth record that I just cannot defend. It is, (laughs) it is, it is, uh, it makes uh, Risk look like their best album. Wow. That's how I feel about uh, Super Collider, <laughs> which would make for a amazing discussion sometime, but uh, even among like two Megadeth fans, yeah, yeah. because that album is just... Uh, oh no, I, just think, I think albums like that, the ones where they divide the fans are actually, those conversations are better, best. best between totally. two fans rather than somebody like me who isn't familiar with the catalog and hasn't sort of had those expectations. Yeah, it's much more interesting when you get actual fans. Uh, and the thing is, though, like by dil- like whenever they get to a point where they've so diluted themselves, then they come back with something amazing, you know. And yeah. so, with after Super Collider came Dystopia, which 
universally loved as far as, you know, Megadeth getting back to form, Megadeth being back to where, you know, even though old school fans want them to be like that, that was their bounce back album. And so, um, and usually the one after that is pretty good too, which is why I, I have hope that when Dave recovers, they're actually working on the new album right now. And when he is, uh, in between treatments, he is working on the new album with the guys in the studio. And so, um, I don't know, uh, what that means vocally for him, but from a music standpoint, I know that they are still chipping away at the new album. So, uh, yeah. And I, and I expect it to be pretty great when it comes out. Awesome. All right. Let us bring that to a close then. I think this may wind up being one of our longest ever episodes. Well, that's fine <laughs> Just by looking me. looking at the time code. Yeah. Yeah. Who could have guessed? <laughs> so before we get our homework from, and it's your choice uh, for the next Oh, episode. I can't wait. So before we do that, let me just remind everyone uh, that, of course, if you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it, appreciate it if you would uh, help spread the word, tell your friends, uh, rate us on iTunes and the Google Play Podcasts store. And of course, you can always support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, if you want to get in touch, go to thrashedoutpodcast.com for links to uh, the show email and our Twitter accounts and also a link to buy a T-shirt. Uh, see, I remembered. Um, and if Very you nice. chat to us on Proud Facebook, you. you can join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashingout. All right, Brian, lay it on me, dude. What are we going to talk about next time? Well, it's funny because we've already mentioned the band that we're going to talk about next time oh. in this very episode. We talked about the band that we're going to talk about next time. Because if you remember, Anthony, I believe this is my last pick of the Respect Your Elders it volume. Is. Yes, it is. Of Thrash It Out. The band that deserves the most respect for every single band that we've talked about on this show since it started is ACDC. Oh, wow. And it just happens to be the 40th anniversary this year of the 1979 album that would be the last for the greatest frontman in the history of rock and roll, Bon Scott. Mm -hmm. So we are going to talk about Highway to Hell on the next episode of Thrash It Out, because there are no elders that should be more respected than (laughs) ACDC. I think Robert Plant might have a word or two to say about that. But yes, they don't hold a candle to (laughs) ACDC. ACDC is the greatest rock and roll band in the history of music. (laughs) No, excellent. Okay. I'll look forward to that. I, I haven't, I'm not a huge ACDC, like, you know, devotee, but I do like them, you know, but I've only heard the singles. I don't think I've ever actually listened to a whole album. So, uh, I really, honestly debated on what acdc album i was going to talk about because you could very easily put 1980s uh first brian johnson album back in black up there which is considered to be one of the greatest albums of all time right i've heard of that one yeah yeah uh but i feel like we had to do a bon scott album if we're going to do one acdc album and even though i don't think this is their best album with bon scott it is the 40th anniversary of this album and it is one of their most popular albums of all time so i think this is absolutely a worthy uh, discussion here. Now, I'm sure there will be people that say this is not metal. Oh, fuck off. I would argue your metal does not exist without ACDC. Yeah, no, that's... And so, yeah, um, yeah I cannot wait. I, this is, uh, as much as Megadeth is my favorite metal band of all time, hands down, ACDC is my favorite rock band yeah. of all time. Yeah, you've got to take things in con. You know, now, sure, okay, you know, like here in 2019, no, going to an ACDC gig is not going to a heavy metal gig. But in 1980, 
you know, for heaven's sake. Um, it was, yeah, they were one of the heaviest bands around because music just was not that heavy at that time. So yeah, I, I will brook no argument. <laughs> yep. So there you go. That is my final pick for this season uh, for respecting your elders. Fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, I will look forward to that. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll get back to uh, a slightly more regular schedule. Uh, we will endeavor to do that. But in the meantime, uh, go out and grab your copies of Highway to Hell, because I'm sure everybody out there except me has already got one. <laughs> I need to go and grab one. And uh, we'll see you next time. Keep thrashing. Take care, everybody. I don't know what is wrong with my brain today. Well, you're sick. I mean, give yourself a little bit of slack for crying out loud. You're not feeling well. Uh, even so. <clears throat> I'll do that again. It's your conflicted feelings about Megadeth. Maybe you secretly <laughs> love them and you're just trying to power through and be like, I don't, I can't, I can't embrace it. <laughs> don't make me laugh. It makes me cough. <laughs>